Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, sorry about the snafu with the front door this morning. We, we won't make the mistake of starting a class at 8 o'clock in uh, this classroom. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Charlie Adernetto. I am the Judicial Education Officer. You should have three handouts. Uh, the, this packet of paper, another packet of paper called Protective Orders, Brady and Firearms, and then this um, bench page uh, brought to us by Kay Radwanski, which is worth the price of admission today. This, this is wonderful. Uh, so everyone should have those materials. Everyone should have signed in at the back. Our seminar chair is Judge Rachel Torres Carrillo, and I will have her introduce our first speaker. Where is our first speaker? Back there. There. Oh, there! I'm sorry, I'm looking back there. Oh, hi, Rob. Hi, this is uh, Rob Netho, uh, JD, MD, was appointed Sojourner Center um, CEO in December of 2014, where he also serves as the interim director of Sojourner Brain Program. Um, he was mostly recently a partner of Well Mount. Um, your name? Yeah, <laughs> all, okay. Yeah. A boutique and intellectual property and FDA regul regulatory law firm with offices in Phoenix and Chicago. He has led technology, medical, pharmacology, uh, manufacturer companies as a president, CEO, COO, and a general counsel over the course of his 25-year career. He became involved with Sojourner as a volunteer in 2010. Until recently, he's, he served um, on the Sojourner Board of Directors. He has a degree in political science from Northern Illinois University, a Doctor of Medicine degree from UTSA School of Medicine, and a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Thomas Cooley Law School at Western Michigan University. We're happy to have him here. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you for having me here today. Um, so I've been asked to talk a little bit uh, about the domestic violence victims and a little bit about uh, perpetrators. And for those of you that don't know, Sojourner Center is a local domestic violence shelter, um, and we're unfortunately one of the largest in the country. Um, each year between our uh, on-site shelter and transitional programs and community outreach programs, we see almost 10,000 people a year. Um, uh, women and men and children. Um, on site, um, we have a crisis shelter that at any given time has as many as 128 people, and they can stay for uh, up to 120 days. Then we have a transitional housing program where people can move from crisis shelter into uh, transitional housing as they try to work their way towards self-sufficiency, and they can stay there for up to two years. Um, and what a lot of people don't really understand about domestic violence is that it really impacts the entire family. We always think about battered women, um, but there are many battered men, but the, the part of the population that most people just really don't take into consideration, and it's understandable, is the children. Uh, in domestic violence shelters across the country, and Sojourner is no different, nor are any of the other shelters in Maricopa County or the state of Arizona, 51% uh, of the people that we have in our beds each night are children. And 51% of those at Sojourner are five or younger. So we have a, a, a really um, a, a good chance here 
uh, working with children to really break the cycle of domestic violence, but we really all need to work together in doing that. Um, and it's probably not surprising to you that uh, most people in shelter, they, they're lower income. So people we see in community outreach are people that um, may be low income, but generally they're maybe a little bit more in, uh, higher income. They don't have a need to go to shelter. They have some other means, uh, either family, friends, or just cash. They can get their own apartment. So in shelter, we generally see the people that uh, uh, don't have any of that support system or the economics. And in fact, 90% of the families uh, at Sojourner have reported income $14,000 or less. And so these are people that are very trapped in their situation. And uh, they're, they're very afraid. Um, it, it's a high tension, high stress situation at shelter. A lot of people that are very um, unsure of the future. They've never really, many of them really had a chance to do anything. We have, we have many women, they don't even know how to balance a checkbook. They don't know the difference between a credit card or a debit card. They've never been allowed these things. They're giving cash to go to the store and they bring the receipt back and they better have the right amount of change in the balance or there's some problems. So very controlled lives. And now they've made a huge decision to leave and they go to shelter or they go somewhere else. And many times they have nothing. Uh, most people that uh, break away, finally are able to break away, they have approximately 30 minutes to gather up and take off. So they'll plan ahead as much as they can. And then when they do leave, they've got to get out of there and they've got to go fast. And so we have people show up literally with nothing. And so um, they may not have remembered to pick up their driver's license, any sort of birth certificate, um, insurance cards if they have insurance, medication. I mean, they just show up and then we, we start to try to help them. And um, so um, these are just a few more facts. I got, I got kind of sidetracked there because I, I get carried away. But uh, just it, it, it sojourner a little bit uh, more about uh, domestic violence victims. At Sojourner, 43% of the people we see uh, come from outside uh, the Phoenix area. Um, um, then some of the numbers. Um, and then uh, Raquel Balcazar is here. She's one of our lay legal advocates. And I, I do want to say if there's any questions during my presentation, I'm, I'm more of a let's have an interactive conversation guy instead of wait till the end. So anything that comes up, please ask. And Rachel, or Raquel, I'm sorry. <laughs> Raquel is a, um, a wealth of knowledge. She's been doing this a long time. But um, at the Sojourner Lay Legal Program, last year we assisted 409 women and 40 men through the court system as they, they try to get orders of protection, orders against harassment. We have some custody issues that we work on, some immigration issues, and it's kind of across the board. But the bulk of it is orders of protection. Um, last year we uh, had 1,220 women and children in our crisis shelter. Uh, we have 8,700 individuals there. That's really, as we uh, counted, that's a little lower. It's closer to 10,000. We provided almost uh, 79,000 dollars night or 79,000 uh, nights of shelter, uh, 131,000 meals. So the, the point of all this is we have a big problem. 
And what we are trying to do at Sojourner Center is take a whole new look at how we approach domestic violence. And the courts are very important for this. Um, there's been shelter work going on for 40 years, and there's a lot of good work been done, including in Sojourner, but the numbers haven't changed. You know, we've been hearing one in four women uh, for decades. We haven't changed the numbers. So what we're doing isn't working. We're providing some safety. We're providing some escape. Uh, we're providing some help, but at the end of the day, we're not changing anything. So what do we, what can we do? And we really need to start working together to figure that out if we're going to make any difference in this uh, situation at all. So, um, you know, again, again, here's more numbers. Uh, we can keep going. I have, a, I have a lot of numbers, but uh, Phoenix Police Department, 50,000 calls a year on domestic violence, and they estimate that's little bit more than half of what probably actually happens. So again, big, big issue here, and I know you, you see it every day in, in, in your courts. So um, again, we're, we're trying to shift the discussion at Sojourner. Um, it's a public health issue as far as we're concerned. It's not a feminist issue. It's not a family issue. It's not a woman's issue. It's a public health issue that affects all of us. And if you don't have any direct impact by uh, domestic violence, you're indirectly impacted through your tax dollars, through somebody you know. I mean, every one of us is uh, really, really impacted by this. Um, so here's the definition of domestic violence that you work with. You know, and this is, this is just a small section of a very long statute. But this, this is what you look at, and this is what you have to deal with. But what happens um, is this is what an abused person deals with. They don't, they don't know anything about the law. What they know is that they may be in trouble if they don't have a meal made at the right time. Uh, they, you know, meal time is not a happy time for domestic violence uh, affected families. It's a time of uh, tension. Uh, you can be in trouble if you don't dress right, if the children are too loud, if you go out or want to do something on your own. Um, you know, uh, we already talked about uh, going to uh, the store and not coming home with the correct change. I mean, just just all sorts of things. You never know what may set off an abuser. And the list goes on. So this is what an abuse looks at. Not, not the statute, but just fear. Just fear. And, uh, and so when they come to us, we, uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, a lot of work to do, and we have a very short time to do it, and quite frankly, we're not successful very often if, we, if we're very honest with ourselves. Um, so, um, just trying to think what else to say, because I can talk for an hour on that, and trying to be respectful of the time here. So, when somebody does decide after they're in shelter, or even in the community, and they do want to get an order of protection, it's not just a matter of going to the court and filling out a form for them. There's a lot that takes place um, mentally and physically for somebody to actually uh, get to the court and get the job done. So the people that you're seeing are very traumatized, and it's taken a lot of effort. And uh, Raquel can really talk to this, but they have limited support systems. And, and so uh, we're talking about you know, help to get, get to court, help to file forms, pull them out. They don't really have those support systems unless they get to one of our advocates. Um, collection of documents. 
you know, they really don't know what's important. What does the court really want to see? They have no idea. They don't know. They're just trying to put their lives together. And then they don't have access to them a lot because they've left the house. How do they get them? They can't, they can't really get to the documents. So if they're a mother, they also have to arrange for childcare. And these are people of very low means. Uh, often they don't have a car, so you know, childcare is a big deal. Even getting to the court is a big deal. It takes a lot of effort. Um, there's the intimidation of the court. It's a very frightening place. You know, you get there, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, just even getting through security, and then you have to walk your way up, get your find where you're supposed to go. Courtrooms are very intimidating. Judges are very intimidating. It's just a very, very nerve-wracking situation. Um, and then, then uh, yes? So what can we do, judges, to lower that intimidation factor? So, okay, excellent question. And what, one, big, uh, one big thing that I think we could do is really take more time. I know the courts are very pressed. Judges are very pressed for time. They have huge caseloads. But just take the time to listen. Um, and if somebody's hesitating, it doesn't mean that they don't want to answer or they're not being truthful. They're, they're under a great deal of stress and, they, and they, they haven't had the ability to speak for themselves. So it's just a, a really empathy and compassion and a little more time to let them take time. Um, another thing that we really find at Sojourner and I was going to talk a little bit about is um, traumatic brain injury. So 87% of women that come into shelter have had a traumatic brain injury causal event in the previous 12 months. So we hear a lot about traumatic brain injury in athletes in the military. And what we're doing at Sojourner um, is taking a look at it in the domestic violence population. And again, we're finding that in, we don't know what the number of traumatic brain injuries is right now, but we do know that 87% of the women that come to us have had uh, a blow to a head or strangulation that could cause a traumatic brain injury. So what does that mean for you? Well, that means that they're, they're, they can be confused. They may not be able to read what's on the paper. This could be jumping around. This could be blurry. This could be double vision right here. They can't read it. Um, I think I had a slide here that showed kind of some of that. But, um, so get this, and so they may want to be helpful, but they can't. They can't read what's on the paper. They are, they may be confused. Memory issues are are um, a big problem in traumatic brain injury, and there's a high level of traumatic brain injury in this population. And so again, it gets back to providing time for somebody to speak. Somebody might not speak for 30 seconds, but it doesn't mean they don't want to. It's taking that long to gather their thoughts or try to figure out what's going on, because they've got really a double whammy against them. One, they've never been really allowed to think for themselves, and now they're being forced to do it very quickly, and they may not have the capacity to do it because they have uh, some sort of brain trauma, and it's just not clicking. So if, if you walk away with anything today from this talk is just time and don't, you know, and, and just give people some compassion, empathy, and a, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt when they're trying to, to tell their story. And again, they don't know what's important. They're trying to pull out what's important, what the judge thinks, or what they think the judge wants to hear, and, and they, they're, they're really very confused. 
Good morning. Um, I'm Raquel, and I'm the victim's advocate, and I know that there's a question in your mind, like, we walked in there with the victim, or the victim walks in with the paperwork. First of all, just getting to the courthouse is intimidating. And just trying to find out what paperwork, and if it's different, if it goes to uh, Justice Court is in, through the computer, if it goes to Superior Court is through the computer. Some of these people don't know how to even touch a computer. They have, they have not been uh, allowed to even look at the internet, so that's intimidating. So what we do as advocates, as they walk into, and my, by the way, my office is downtown Superior Court at the uh, Protective Order Center. As they come in and they, the staff, they notice that she is like rambling and she's, she's just upst upset. They send her into my office and I sit down with her. This is the time where, how we put it in the, in the paperwork so you can see exactly what is her fear, what, what has happened, and, and for her to put it into words and that's how, how long it takes. It could take from an hour to three hours, depending on how severe the, the trauma is for that particular person. Uh, once again, you know, if, if they go in there and, and is asking questions, and uh, some of you know me, that, that I go in there and we stay behind. You know, we try to prep the, the, the victim as much as we can. You know, if the judge is going to ask you because you, you're saying this, this is, you can, you can say exactly what's going on. You know, did he shove you? Did he push you? Did he, you know, locked you against your will? You know, stuff of that nature. And because sometimes they get all ramped up. You know, he he put a knife on my on my on my throat. You know, he. But it's very very scary for them to even. You know, I'm betraying my partner. I feel like I'm betraying them if I'm saying that because they are already told, you know, this is between you and I, this is just for the family, this has nothing to do with, you know, with the world out there. So trying to give her comfort and trying to let her know that, you know, it's okay and validate her fear. So once we see them, we talk to them, and we give them options. What are the options? Okay, if they come into my office and they say, well, I, I, just, I just want to, to protect my kids, and, I, and I protect them from, from what? Like, and you have to say, I know it's very difficult, and I know that a lot of you have seen that DES, just caseworkers, just sends them into, their, you know, into your courtrooms and say, well, DES said that he's going to remove my kids, or and now if you do not, if I don't have this order of protection, and just go to Superior Court, get emergency legal decision making, and that's it. And it's like that—that's not how it works. It, it's a process, and you know, it's very difficult. And I try to explain that to them. It's very difficult for a judge to tell a parent, "You can't see your children." You know, it's. It, this father or this mother has a right to her. You have to say why. Why you fear for the, you know, the children's safety. Now, with DES, you know, just say, go ahead, uh, go and get an order of protection. Well, it, it's not a given. You, 
you you have to have some kind of you know domestic violence in regards to to the children. You know, I had one particular case where he held a gun to the child's head, put the gun at her mouth, you know, and stuff like that. But if she never said to me, well, he held a gun to to the child's head or you know stuff of that nature, how would you know that this child was threatened with the gun? So that's, that's where we come in as advocates. We, we give them choices. They need to make the choice and they need to know, you know, one step at a time. They have made a leap. They, that leaving, that's the big leap. After that is baby steps and we can help. Yes, ma'am. Raquel, could you address what happened the other day? <coughs> one of the things I'm going to talk about when we talk is being aware of your courtroom, who's in your hallway, who's how, when they're waiting for each other, when they're waiting for your hearing, that you do not have them together waiting in the hallway or together in the courtroom waiting, that there should be one in and one out. But can you address what happened the other day? Absolutely. We had a, well, you know, I was in my, in my office. I was coming in from a meeting and, um, all of a sudden, I hear like a discussion in the in the. In, she's trying to do her petition, and I had not met this victim. And all of a sudden, you know, he shows up and he says, "I just want to talk to her. I did. I need to talk to her." So I just got up and I said, "Sir, you need to leave. You need to step away." And so she started bawling, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna put you into my office." And so he was still persistent. So we called security, and he didn't pay no attention to security. So we had to call deputies. So they escorted him out of the courtroom. Meanwhile, I'm left with the victim. You know, it took from, it was about 12 until 1.30 when we went to see uh, Commissioner Morton. And, and all that, I'm trying to explain to her, it, it's okay, well, he it was, they had a 17-year-old child. They have not been together for a long time. Recently, this woman had her house burned. Her, her house was born. Uh, he's very savvy in computers. So he's, he offered daughter, who's 17, uh, I can go and take pictures for the insurance. For, so, that, so she's like, OK, he wants to help, he can. Well, he took it upon himself to put a GPS on her car, a GPS, you know, the, the GPS on her phone. He's computer savvy and threatening her to publicize very revealing pictures of her. So good thing that we have, uh, you know, something that is, uh, you can now, it just passed on, on the, the 7th. Um, so I, I spoke to her, I said, it's, it's, it's a crime now. You know, it just happened just last week. It just, it, it became a, a law. So calm her down, but we need, we needed, like I went with her, we went, we did the petition, we went to file, we went to see Commissioner Morton, and, and then it's the fact that how she's gonna get out of court. So we had to have a deputy, like escort her all the way to her car. But that's, you know, the fact that she has a GPS on her on her car. He's been showing up at her boyfriend's house, threatening boyfriend. He's been following her at her work. Everywhere she goes, he's there. 
So it, it's very important that we need to let them know, and it's safety planning. We need, we do a lot of safety planning with them. When you're coming out of work, when you're going to drop off the kids, it, you know, does he have access to the kids, the school, you know, how is that going to affect the children? Trying to give some safety planning for her and the kids, and also as well as for her, because she's the target. So. You know, I went to Commissioner Morton and you know, she, you know, even asked, you know, is there a deputy that's going to ask for her? And, you know, she's, yes, there's going to be a deputy that's going to ask for her out. But what percentage is it that a victim is going to get an advocate? Very small, very small. So most of the time, you know, I'm there and I'm, if it takes four hours for me to, put my whole attention and to do safety planning with this victim, there's a lot of people that come through and I don't get to see. I'm the only one that's in the, uh, in the uh, Superior Court. And by the way, I do travel. I have been to some of your courtrooms. So, thank you. Yes. Um, I, I think one thing that uh, Raquel brought up uh, a little indirectly, uh, when women or, or men, when they're in front of you seeking orders of protection, they're being asked to describe physical acts of violence. You know, and that, that's what you're looking for to make sure that you can justifiably order, you know, the, or, or issue the order of protection. Um, it's important to know, though, that many, many, many victims of domestic violence have not been physically harmed. It's, uh, it's psychological harm. And, it, and many times that's worse than any physical harm that has been um, inflicted. Um, you know, you might get hit, um, get hit in, the, in the back or the, or the stomach or, or whatever, and that, that generally, generally will heal. But those, the psychological impacts of uh, domestic violence are, are probably more important than the actual physical. Um, so I, I don't know what you can do with that. I know you have your limitations with the law and you have to look for certain things, but it, it's a very, very, very important feature of domestic violence is the psychological violence is oftentimes much, much worse than the physical violence. And those scars last for years. And that's what we, we deal with all the time, years and years and years of trying to get over that. Um, and uh, so. So uh, again, I, I, I really hope that you walk away with uh, from Raquel's stories and some of the information that I've, I've given you so far in traumatic brain injury, that this is just the most unbelievably stressful situation that you can possibly imagine for these people. And so again, to give time to get their stories out um, and I know you, you can't lead or tell them what to tell you, but <laughs> just give them time and, and, and sort of, here's the kind of thing I need to know from you. Can you tell me anything along this list? And just be, again, empathetic in that because they're, they're usually just struggling and they want to help. They just don't know how to help themselves or to help you help them. Um, so. And, and again, I'm coming back to traumatic brain injury um, because we're finding out that it's a big, big factor um, in the women that we, we serve. And 
And so uh, the people that we see, you know, they have mild TBIs. If it's uh, more, uh, more severe, we usually don't see them. They're hospitalized. They've got other issues that they have to take care of. But, you know, from your standpoint, you, you know, memory, concentration, they may, they may appear very tired, and, or they may be very tired, and they may appear to you to be disinterested, but it's not. They're just fatigued. They can't, they can't muster the energy, not because they don't want to. They just can't do it. Um, photosensitivity, you know, lights like this, fluorescent lights set people off. They have a traumatic brain injury or even PTSD. Again, blurred vision. Um, discuss that a little bit. So these are very real and very, very common. These aren't, you know, you're one in a thousand. These are probably 990 out of a thousand. You're, you're going to have somebody with some form of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or a traumatic brain injury that affects their ability to um, help themselves. So. Um, we were asked a little bit, or asked to talk a little bit about perpetrators, and uh, Raquel can probably talk about this better than I can. Um, we don't really deal with perpetrators right now, but we do know from working with the women what what perpetrators are, are like, and um, a lot of them. These are these are the feelings that many perpetrators have. They they feel like they've been victimized. That it's really not their fault. That what they're doing, they need to do, and so they're really the victims in this situation. Um, uh, uh, a big issue is this. They themselves have been the subject of domestic violence as you, that's what they know. And so we, they, and, and it's very hard, it, it, it's very hard to put ourselves in their shoes. You know, we go, well, it doesn't make any sense. You just know you shouldn't hit somebody. But it, it's a different mindset. They, it's just what they've learned. You know? um, they don't know any different, they don't believe that it's wrong, they think they're doing the right thing. So, um, and they, and, and also, and this is cultural to a large extent, but it, it's across board, their beliefs, what they've been raised to think about women, male male perpetrators, what, what, what they, they really um, um, view women as being, are they objectifying them, um, and, and so forth. But these are all very ingrained it's not something that just happened. Another, uh, another fallacy about, uh, or myth, I guess, about domestic violence is that alcohol and drugs cause domestic violence. That's really not true. Their coping mechanisms in, in DV may result from it, but if somebody is, has a propensity for domestic violence for whatever reason, whether they're on drugs or alcohol, doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're going to do it. It might make it easier, you know, as we're, you know, uh, on alcohol with uh, uh, inhibition suppression, might make it easier, but it's not the cause. So, um, and study after study has shown that to be the case. Um, well, and you said it, it's, it's the foundation is, it's, it's, you know, when children are exposed to domestic violence, they learn, they learn by example. They either become victims or they become aggressors. Uh, and that's up to us, and that's why it's so important that we have to think about the children. You know, the children are like, okay, let's get an order of protection, let's take, you know, let's 
keep these two off each other, but what happened with the kids? You know, how, how are they going to be impacted? How come dad is not at home anymore? Or how come I, I can't see dad anymore? Or vice versa, why, why did dad took me all the way out and I cannot see mom anymore? You know, it's, it's the, this imbalance. And you know, what have they learned in that period where they've been with mom and dad? You know, the throwing, the, you know, they, they might not have touched them, but they have make holes on the wall, through the door, you know, what's the impact? What impression, what, what that does that to a child that is still learning, they're still trying to figure out what's going on? So if, if a, a male, and we say a male, but it's both, females and, and males, if they see, you know, dad or mom abusing dad all the time, then I learn that that's how I'm going to do things. You know, I, if I don't get my way, I start trumping, I start kicking, I start. So that continues on and continues on until they become adults themselves, and that that's the way of doing it. So that's why they feel they've been victimized. Hey, you're saying all this stuff, but I I lived this. So she started it. She she screamed at me. She didn't cook the 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 food right. I myself went through that. I was thrown a a pot of food because it didn't have salt enough. It was thrown to me. So stuff of that nature, you know, now it's, it's and this was 35 years ago, now that I'm, the, the, that I can see is like how he was raised, how my husband was raised that mom and dad were like lethal to each other. And he normalized that. So that's why he felt like he was victimized. He, went and got an order of protection against me, and he had stabbed me. <coughs> so, and we're talking about 1980. We have moved a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and, and I don't mean to keep harping on traumatic brain injury. We, we know it's a big issue, but it's not the be all and end all, and that, that's really not what I'm here to say. I, I do want to say, however, many perpetrators have traumatic brain injuries because of violent uh, upbringings, or it could be from an auto accident or a sports injury. But many times it's uh, due to a violent childhood themselves. And one of the very first things to go in traumatic brain injury is impulse control. And so they may have no, they, they don't want to really hit, you know, but they, they just can't help it. And we see, we've seen recent cases of this in the NFL that, uh, you know, people come forward. I, I, I don't know what happened to me. I just started being violent, and I don't know why it is. Well, it turns out it was a traumatic brain injury. Just impulse control is gone. And so what do we do? I mean, that's not very helpful to you, right? <laughs> so what do you, what do you do with perpetrators? Well, one thing we, or another thing that we know is that uh, better intervention programs don't work. They don't work. Most people don't finish them. A lot of people don't start them. If somebody wants to, um, it, they'll, they'll only get over being an abuser once they make the decision to. But no matter what you do as judges, you're not going to force them to do it. You can send them to jail. You can fine them thousands of dollars. You can send them to uh, um, intervention programs. It's not going to work. None of those things will work, sorry to say. Uh, we, we can't, we can't uh, use the penal system to work our way out of this problem. 
So and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of good answers for you what we do, um, but it, it comes to really education for the perpetrators on, on why this is wrong, whether it's cultural, whether it's uh, physiological and they need help, whether it's psychological um, and they also need help. So more one-on-one -on -one counseling, which is very expensive. So how do we do that? You know, force somebody into counseling, doing group therapy, again, unless they want to change, they're not going to change. So group therapy works after they've made the decision to change, but they need very intense one-on-one -on -one, um, work and education to get to that point. And then we can use group therapy, and then that, that's helpful. But, um, so, as you have a perpetrator saying in front of you, to say, yeah, you're going to jail for 30 days, that might be what the law says, but it, it's just not going to do anything. It's going to be a revolving door, and I think you probably all know that. Um, you, you see it time and time again, and, it, and it's probably very frustrating, because third time you're in here, when are you going to learn? Well, they haven't made the decision. They don't have the education. So if we can work on education or, again, you know, health care, you know, through physiological, you know, um, you know, the trauma, whether it's psychological or physiological, if we can work on those issues, then we can start to make a dent in this horrific problem. Um, so that's kind of the end of uh, what we have. So you have any questions? Yes. So really the, what you have found to be the number one cause would be kind of a generational mindset. Correct. Correct. No real outlying, no drugs, alcohol, egos, anything like that. Right. In, in, in general, that, that's absolutely right. The vast majority of it is it's ingrained from, as you said, generationally or culturally. It's. Um, you just touched on it briefly, but you seem to almost advocate error on the side of putting kids as protected parties on the order of protection. And um, I think judges are more likely to err on the side of not putting kids as a protected party on an order of protection, sometimes banning uh, the alleged abuser from the home address in effect does that anyway. Mm -hmm. But at least as limited jurisdiction court judges, we don't like to have many child custody battles in, in justice court mm -hmm. and for as many people as we come in that says you know CPS or whatever it's called now um, yeah, yeah, as many people we get in that come and says no they told me I have to get I have to get an order I have to put my kid on the order otherwise they'll take my kid we also get an enormous amount of people coming in that are much more fluent and they says, well, my divorce attorney told me to put the kids on the order so I get a head start, you know, yeah. on my divorce. Right. And, and so some of it is we know that if we put kids on the order, there's about an 80% chance we're going to have a hearing. Um, but the, the, the other issue is we're, we're making essentially a child custody determination listening to only one side. Right. And that's very difficult to do in a limited jurisdiction court context. So I was just wondering what both your thoughts were on so, that. First of all, you know, once, once a, you know, a victim comes in and says, you know, I, DCS told me to put the children on the order, okay. Uh, where are the children now? Uh, well, DCS took them and told me they won't return my kids until yeah. I, I said, well, 
right now, if, if they took over and they removed the children, then you have to deal with juvenile court. It's nothing that they, I mean, you can obtain if what, what, you know, what he, he did to you, you could try to do a petition and go up in front of a judge and see if, you know, if he gives you the, the order of protection. And back to, you know, it's a very difficult situation for you guys to say, okay, dad cannot see the children. I, I totally get it. You know, so when they come to my office, it's like, okay, they say my children. I said, no, they're, they're your children, him and yours. I said that you both have the same rights to these children unless he has, you know, and I mentioned this where he assaulted her in the kitchen. She ran into the kid's bedroom because she felt like he's not going to hit me when the kids are around. Well, no, he did not physically touch her, but he threw the door down, made holes on the wall, and so we put that in a petition, and it's up to you to say, okay, uh, maybe. And I've seen where it says, okay, I'm going to put them for 30 days. That gives you enough time for you. Yes, ma'am. You can't do that. You can't, you can't, you can't put a time limit on it. We'll, and I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, that's fine. we'll talk about kids on orders extensively in our presentation, so I don't want you to have to take but, time. But, my experience, and I've been doing this for 13 years, and you know, this was a while ago where they say, I'm going to put the kids... 30 days. Okay. So okay. So I mean, it, and to me, it's like okay, if if that's is that's it, it, it gives them a, a time limit for a victim to to figure out whether they're going to file for legal decision making, divorce, or, or or emergency legal decision making, or they just go and say, I want to file for legal decision making. Well, we know that they can file unless they file for legal decision making and then they can file for emergency legal decision making. That's stuff that they don't know. So we, I brought this booklet that, uh, you know, we, we give it and I have it in Spanish and English and, and Tom Alonji had a lot to do with it, and, you know, when we put it together in regards to helping a victim navigate them, you know, and represent themselves in family court because we know they don't have any money. They're, so they need to know where they're starting, where they, what they're going to do. But it, it, it's difficult, and it's something that we talk about with victims. We need to figure out what he has done. Yeah, if he put the gun on the child's head, yeah, I'm sure a judge is going to grant you that, you know, to put the child, and then they'll come in and, and request a hearing for that order of protection. But, you know, it's, it, it, and it's up to you. I think in uh, further answer, I know it's begging for a hearing, <laughs> but um, we do know, um, again, multiple studies show that where there is uh, physical violence in the home against one spouse or the other, mostly it's women uh, that are being abused, um, in seven, some, some studies say 78%, uh, others say as low as 72, but still over 70% of the children in the home are also abused. So when you're looking at it, it it's it's a high percentage. It's not a it's it's not a 50-50 coin flip of abuse. It's very strong, strongly weighted in um, I guess in favor, unfortunately, of, of a child being abused too. So you said something early on that uh, of your center, the Sojourner Center, that. 
a very large, oh, 43% of individuals served came from outside Phoenix. And that, that kind of struck me. I mean, we're talking almost half there. Right. How does, why is that? How does that work? I never would have thought of that. Well, uh, people, when, when they do decide to break away, a lot of people will travel as far as they can because they, they feel distance is, is, a, is a positive thing, right? So okay. um, um, I, I'm, I'm lost the number right here, but it's, it's a little over 90% of the people that we see are from Arizona. But we have people coming from across the country. Um, and, and that number is actually growing because we recently opened a pet companion shelter and so people can now bring their pets with them. And we know that 40% of women will not leave an abusive relationship if they have a pet for fear of what will happen to the pet. So we're trying to relieve or lower or eliminate that barrier so they can now bring their pets with them. Um, and so we, in answer to your question, we've had somebody drive from as far as North Carolina and Wyoming to come to our uh, shelter because they, they have pets. And one of them really surprised us. I uh, brought a goat. <laughs> we got a 200-pound goat. <laughs> so, okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Something that I would not have expected. I would think 95 people would be Phoenix. Or yeah, something like that. Right. That does make sense. What you're telling me. A space equals safety to some Thank you. Anything else? Well, thank you very much for thank listening you. to us. If you have any questions, feel free to uh, contact uh, Raquel or me or anybody at SoCenter. We're happy to get in. Thank you, Dr. Nattel and Raquel. And our next speaker is Kay Radwanski. Kay is from the uh, Administrative Office of the Courts. Uh, she is the go-to person for orders of protections, and particularly firearms. Uh, so she does have a great deal of, of information. And I can tell you, a lot of the questions that I get pertain to Brady and pertain to firearms. Uh, so this, this is extremely valuable information. Once again, there are three handouts. Um, her PowerPoint is in uh, your um, packets. and. Uh, you have a bench, uh, a bench card, and then there's another that contains the brand new rules for orders of protection. Uh, Kay is an attorney in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which ironically are also states that Commissioner Morton uh, are, is admitted to. Uh, so, and Kay has spoken to us before, and she's just a terrific resource. So let's welcome Kay. Before we get started, I'd like to go through this packet and show you some of the things that are in it that we're going to refer to. Uh, right after the title page, you have an illustration 
This pretty much illustrates ARS 133601, which is Arizona's domestic violence statute. Uh, as, as you know, we have seven relationship categories that qualify a person for an order of protection. We have a, a list of crimes. If you look at 133601, the first paragraph is a lot of numbers. It's, it's really hard to break that down when you're in a hurry, so this list kind of does that for you. We'll go into that in a little more detail. You also have a, on the next page an illustration that helps guide us through the federal statute, the Brady Act, and we'll go through that in detail as well. And then after that, you have a copy of the order of protection form, which is probably quite familiar to you if you've handled orders of protection at any time in the past. The protective order forms are mandated by the Supreme Court. They are standardized throughout the state. So regardless of which court you're in, this form should look very much like this. Then the next page is the notice to sheriff of Brady indicator. And again, we'll get to that. And then finally, you have a complete set of the Arizona Rules of Protective Order Procedure. These rules have been in effect in Arizona courts since 2008. But in 2015, they were revised the Chief Justice's strategic agenda is emphasizing simplifying court rules so that self-represented litigants can navigate them a little more easily. So the RPOC rules were restyled, primarily reorganized. There's not a, a lot of new content in them. There are a couple things about the address confidentiality program and uh, the prohibition on requiring a plaintiff to disclose the location of a domestic violence shelter. But pretty much the, the rules haven't changed. They've just been reorganized. There's a table of contents in the front that helps guide you through the, this new structure. It follows the flow of the case, so it's a very logical structure. And then at the back of the rules, there are two correlation tables. One table helps you get from the previous version of the rules to the new one. The other table takes you from the new rules back to the previous version. So I've tried to give you those so that can be a, a useful aid to you. You also have a bench card that we'll go through in a little more detail, but I'm hoping you'll find this helpful when you're faced with questions regarding firearms and protective orders and when does state law apply and when does federal law apply. You also have a copy of the PowerPoint, but I just ask you not to worry too much about that right now because what I say is on the notes on that PowerPoint and you'll have all this information. So you also don't need to worry too much about taking notes on this. So we know an order of protection can result in a person being a prohibited possessor of firearms. The question is when are they a prohibited possessor under Arizona law and when are they a prohibited possessor under federal law? We have the illustration in your materials, ARS 133601 defines domestic violence. First, you have to have a relationship. If the plaintiff in front of you meets one of the relationship tests, and then if one of the acts described in the petition meets one of the crimes listed in ARS 133601A, you have domestic violence. We don't have a specific crime in Arizona called domestic violence. We, we sort of have to work out this equation. So under the relationships, we have people that are married to each other now or in the past. People who have lived together with each other now or in the past. These can be folks who are roommates, who are simply sharing a residence to save money. It can be people who are cohabiting intimately. It can be 
relatives who just happen to share the same house. There's no requirement that the people living together under Arizona law do so intimately. Uh, the parties may have a child in common or one party may be pregnant by the other. We have uh, plaintiffs and defendants that are related, people that are related by blood, parents, children, uh, that sort of thing, grandparents. We have people that are related by marriage, in-laws, uh, varieties of step-parents. This list doesn't include aunts, uncles, and cousins, nieces and nephews, unless they happen to be residing in the same house. We have child victims, and then we have people in dating relationships. Under our statute, it's folks who are, are in a romantic or sexual relationship, and the statute gives you some factors that you can apply to determine whether these folks, in fact, are uh, in a dating relationship. We have 30 crimes that range from all sorts of things, physical violence, um, you know, the extreme homicide, also assault, aggravated assault, and then we have crimes that don't involve any physical harm, like threats, intimidation, uh, endangerment or neglect or abandonment of an animal. Uh, I think there was a, a reference to animals earlier where somebody who abuses animals there's the potential there for that person to also abuse people. Uh, the legislature several years ago added pets, actually added animals to the statute uh, 1336.02, so those can be protected as well because sometimes the threats are made against the animal rather than the person because you can hurt the animal and not leave any bruises on the person. So we've got those 30 statutes that we refer to. So if we've got one of those relationships, we've got one of those acts in the petition, we have domestic violence. The order of protection statute is 1336.02, and it says the court shall issue an order of protection if there's reasonable cause to believe that the defendant may commit domestic violence or has committed an act of domestic violence. Arizona's law is preemptive that domestic violence does not have to have occurred yet for a person to be eligible for an order of protection. But the standard for issuing it is reasonable cause. Some states, like New Jersey, where I practice law, requires that the defendant or the plaintiff have already suffered the act of domestic violence. And it, it's a little bit difficult to tell a client, I'm sorry that you're, you're living in this hell but until you come back with a black eye or a broken arm, it's really going to be hard to get this order. So Arizona is forward-thinking, preemptive. Domestic violence does not yet have to have occurred. So if you're issuing an order of protection, there's a variety of types of relief that you can uh, grant. No contact, the defendant can't have any contact with the plaintiff or other protected persons if you've included them. The defendant can be barred from a shared residence. The defendant can be barred from certain locations, uh, school, work, home. And the defendant can be barred from possessing firearms. <coughs> if you look at the order of protection form that you've probably seen before, or if it's new to you, it's in your packet, on page two of that form, there's a box that says firearms. To be able to check that box, you have to make a finding that the defendant is a credible threat to the plaintiff's physical safety or the physical safety of protected persons if they're included in the order. 
the form was revised in 2013 to specifically add that reference to ARS 133602 because the federal law has some of that same language and we realized that that was confusing people because they would look at that and not realize whether it was federal law or state law. This is the state law firearms prohibition. So if you check that box, whether it's an ex parte hearing, a contested hearing, or a pre-issuance hearing, that means that under Arizona law, the defendant cannot possess any weapons for the duration of the protective order. There's a second line there that requires you to tell the defendant which law enforcement agency weapons should be surrendered to. The defendant's not going to know about this until the defendant is served with the order. So within 24 hours of the service, the defendant is to deliver those firearms to the designated law enforcement agency. Is there any questions about that? Arizona law. Yes, sir. Defendant's ordered to turn his firearms over to XYZ Police Department in 24 hours. It's the order that says, are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. What happens after? That is a huge problem with this particular law because this is what the statute provides. It doesn't require that the defendant return any sort of proof to the court that the uh, weapons have been surrendered. There's no firearms registry that would help law enforcement know how many and what kind of weapons the defendant has. Um, when this plaintiff leaves the court with your order, you're not sure when it's going to get served because the plaintiff has up to a year to have it served. That person may take it to law enforcement immediately. They may stick it under the mattress for six months. They may stick it under the mattress for two years when it's no longer effective. So the court has no idea when this is going to get served until proof of service comes back to the court. So this, this is a problem. Victim advocates are looking at this because it leaves a gaping hole. You've made this order, but how are you going to enforce it? Can the, can the plaintiff come back to court and say, you know, he got his order, the order was served, I know he has it, but I also know he still has firearms. And then does she have standing to do something at that point? Typically the, the person is told contact the police department and find out if he turned in any weapons. And then they, they could file a contempt, a, a petition for contempt, but the, this is a real weakness in this law. This, this is what you can do. Judge Morton and Mr. Lange, you're going to talk a little bit more about situations when, when this happens. So if you're, you're doing this right, you find that credible threat, you check that box, and, and hope that things work out. And that's, that's a, a really sad thing to have to say, because okay. you. You, you would want the law to be more effective. But <laughs> without those proofs coming back, it's, it's kind of difficult. Yes, ma'am. How about where's the line? Somebody has firearms or bows or something for hunting, but they've never come up as a threat that actually needs to be addressed here. So you're taking those away from the kids from the father. Do you, is it sort of standard to just automatically, if there are guns in the house or the garage, turn them over? Or, or do you need to listen to, well, I understand he's threatened you and he's punched a hole in the wall. It's the question of, are guns available to him versus are you afraid of those guns? Well, exactly, and that takes you back to credible threat. If the 
plaintiff comes in and doesn't say anything in the petition about firearms, the RPOC Rule 23 does require you to ask. But if the plaintiff says to you, yes, he's got hunting weapons, he's never threatened anybody with them, he keeps them secure, I'm not worried about those guns, then you fulfilled your obligation by asking the question. But if the plaintiff hasn't really thought through very well what those guns mean, and if the plaintiff gives you something believable, that's, that's the standard that you're looking at. If, if it's something speculative like, well, he could borrow a gun from his dad, like, is that, is that a credible threat against this person? If they can't give you that, then you don't have to check that firearms box. So you're going to have to weigh the testimony that you're hearing. Uh, if the plaintiff does come up with some information that you feel should be on the petition, then they need to amend their petition because the defendant is entitled to due process and needs to know what the allegations are. Yes, Judge? Uh, what I've done in that situation, and I'd like to advise if this is a good idea or not because I really don't know. But, you know, I have Second Amendment friends. I'd rather avoid that situation if I can. But uh, if it comes up, I've, I've told the person, look, on the one hand, if he's threatening to shoot you, I'm going to take his guns away. On the other hand, if he hasn't, I'm concerned that mentioning something might give him up some ideas. I guess the ultimate question is, what do you, makes you feel safer? Should I say anything about it, or should I leave it alone? Because that, to me, is the standard, and I've asked them that. You think that's a good idea? I'm not a victim advocate, but I would say in the victim advocate community, what I've been hearing is that victims like to be able to make some decisions. They've been deprived of that ability if they're in a coercive, controlling situation. They know their situation best, and often their opinion should carry a lot of weight because they know the other person. You don't. You see a name on a, a piece of paper at this point, so you don't know anything about this person other than what they're telling you. So if that victim is saying to you, I'm not worried about those guns, then you know, let Leave that person have some control over that aspect of their, their life and move on. Sometimes when a victim tries to leave, that's when things become very dangerous. That's often when victims of domestic violence are in lethal situations. So if the person feels, you know, in, in their opinion that taking away those guns could make things worse, then it might be the better choice to not check that box. If they haven't given you any reason to check it, then there's no requirement that you do have to check it. Yes, ma'am. Are you going to get into the Lautenberg Amendment at all as it relates to law enforcement and military? Uh, I wasn't going to go to, to Lautenberg, but I will tell you for Arizona statute, there is no exemption if the defendant is military or law enforcement to carry their duty weapon if there's an order of protection against them. That's different for Brady. For Lautenberg, Lautenberg has to do with people that are convicted of certain domestic, uh, domestic violence crimes. And a Lautenberg defendant can never have a gun again. Or have been the subject of a restraining order. Well, Lautenberg is certain misdemeanor crimes. It has to have a, a, an act of physical violence in it. So not all DV misdemeanors are going to result in persons convicted of those misdemeanors of being Lautenberg prohibited possessors. So the, the feds would have to look at the Arizona statute that this person has been convicted of before they would determine whether that person's Lautenberg. 
So not confuse our Lautenbergs and our Brady's and our Arizona's <laughs> right now, but I was focusing today just on the civil protective order. Uh, again, the defendant has to surrender weapons to uh, law enforcement. Law enforcement is not going to go out and search and seize these weapons. <coughs> there is a provision in 1336.01 if the defendant or if the police are called to the scene of a domestic violence case. Uh, if there are weapons in plain sight, if they have permission to search from the plaintiff, then they can search for weapons and seize them then. But this provision is not going to allow them to go out and, and search for and seize weapons. Some people have the idea that if this box is checked, then this is something like a search warrant. It's, it's not. It's, it's on the defendant to surrender them. And again, in response to the other question, it's, it's kind of iffy whether the defendant will comply and whether the defendant will comply in whole. Okay, so that's Arizona. Now we move on to Brady. This is the federal law. This is 18 U.S.C. 922 G8. This is part of the Federal Gun Control Act. And Brady can make a defendant a prohibited possessor, but there are a number of steps that you have to work through before you know whether this person is a Brady prohibited possessor. Uh, the parties have to be intimate partners. There are some due process provisions, some restraints on conduct, and a credible threat finding for explicit language on the order. And we're going to go through those uh, separately. We're talking about Brady in the context of orders of protection, but Brady can apply to other categories of, of people. For example, a convicted felon is a Brady prohibited possessor, an illegal alien. <coughs> Uh, a fugitive, a person who's been dishonorably discharged from the military, a uh, person who has renounced their U.S. citizenship, people who have been adjudicated mentally ill, that would be Title 36 cases in Arizona. Uh, not sure if I said fugitives. And then we have people subject to protective orders if certain conditions are met. We also have uh, prohibited possessors under Lautenberg, but we're focusing on Brady here. So under federal law, we have an intimate partner relationship <coughs> test. And you'll see here we only have three categories of people. Spouses or former spouses, people who are parents of a child in common, and present or former cohabitants, and the federal authorities emphasize intimate people. So these are not your roommates. These are not your relatives who live in the same house. These are not your relatives who may have once lived together in the same house. The focus is on intimate partner. What's the nature of the relationship between these people? Uh, some victim advocates are concerned that Brady doesn't apply to a situation where one party is pregnant by the other if they're not cohabiting. Remember, under Arizona law, if one party is pregnant by the other, that person's eligible for an order of protection. Under Brady, if these folks are not living together intimately and one is pregnant by the other, Brady isn't going to apply. So we have a smaller group of people here. We only have three categories of people that are intimate partners. So if you have a petition in front of you and you see that the person has checked uh, live together now or in the past, you may need to make some additional inquiry to find out what the nature of that relationship is because you could be looking at the roommates or 
the relatives who just happen to live in the same house, or you could be looking at intimate partners. So when, when you get into the Brady thing, if you see that relationship checked off, you might need to ask some more questions about that. For Brady to apply, the defendant has to be given due process. So that means that Brady is never going to apply to an ex parte petition because the defendant doesn't know the plaintiff is there, the defendant hasn't been invited to the hearing, the defendant knows nothing about it. So Brady is never going to apply to an ex parte situation. For Brady to apply, the order has to be issued after a hearing of which the defendant had actual notice and an opportunity to participate. So a low standard for what constitutes a hearing. Parties don't have to be sworn, evidence doesn't have to be taken. I've, I've heard among the family law bench that there's a notion that, let's say, wife gets an order of protection, both parties are represented, they come to court, they kind of meet out in the hallway, defendant stipulates to the entry of the protective order, but let's take the kids off so we can have parenting time. Parties agree to that out in the hall. One party goes back into court and this is all put on the record. I think there's a, a notion among the courts, among the family law bench, that Brady's not going to apply. <coughs> Federal authorities might argue otherwise. I've been to trainings offered by US, deputy US attorneys on that. They would say that constitutes a hearing because this is a very low standard. So we'll, we'll get into the consequences of being a Brady prohibited possessor and not knowing it. That's, that's down the road a little bit, but that, that might be a little dicey if, if a client is being advised that stipulating, if the defendant had a, some participation in how this is all working out, the feds would try to argue that that was a hearing. But the solution there would be for the plaintiff to dismiss the order and then request a new one without, without the children. That's a, that's a possible way to work around that. Or bring everybody in. On the record. Then that's a hearing. Then that's a hearing. Yes. The example you just gave about the lobby, which isn't enough to just ask the judge to say they have the opportunity to participate because the judge not to you have a chance. Does that does that fly with, with the courts? You know. Well, it, it probably would. The case that I look to for hearings is U.S. versus Young, which is a Ninth Circuit case, and it talks about this very low standard for what constitutes a hearing. Um, I think it's also the same case that talks about opportunities to participate and actual notice. Actual notice is notice that's given to a defendant personally and directly. If I tell you in 10 minutes we're going to go take a walk around the building, I have just given you actual notice. I didn't have to mail you anything. I didn't write anything down. I told you. So now you know. Actual notice is that kind of notice. So if a defendant comes to the court and they've, they've been served with their order of protection and they request a contested hearing, court staff will process their request and hand them back a hearing notice. They now have actual notice. <coughs> If the court mails the defendant a notice, let's say the plaintiff is the one that has requested the hearing and we've already had a previous hearing, so we need to give the defendant notice. Stick something in the mail, the day of the hearing comes, defendant's not there. You can't confirm actual notice because maybe the U.S. Postal Service didn't deliver the mail. 
Maybe the defendant looked at it and dropped it in a trash can. Maybe the defendant read it and dropped it in the trash can. Defendant's not there. You can't tell what happened to that piece of mail. So you can't confirm actual notice. Let's say the court mails a notice. Defendant shows up at the right day and time. You can confirm actual notice because that person is there. Uh, opportunity to participate. This is also a low standard. They have to have been given the opportunity. If, if that notice was handed across the counter to them and they didn't come on that day, they blew their opportunity. Uh, it, it's just a very low standard. They don't have to actually participate. They have to have been given the opportunity. Let's say they come back later and say, well, I got hit by a bus that day and that's why I missed court. And that gives you some consideration about whether you would reschedule that hearing, but that's probably rare when people get run over by buses. When we're talking about Brady, we're not talking about every order of protection that's issued in an Arizona court. In an average year, we have 30,000 orders of petition that are granted across the state. So we're looking at three relationships for Brady. So we're knocking out all the orders of protection for the people that are not intimate partners. Of the, the number that are left, only about 30% are contested in a, a given year. 70% of the orders are never contested. Some of those might not have been served either. We, we can't tell for the 70% that don't come back to court what actually happened. So we've got 30% of 30,000, 10,000 orders. Of those, we're going to take out the relationships that don't apply. So we're, we're not looking at a huge number of Brady prohibited possessors. The order, oh yes sir. I'm sorry, this, this is something I kind of struggle with. If, if you make someone a prohibited possessor under state law, their only remedy is to request a hearing, which makes them a prohibited possessor under federal law. Um, so if, if, they if, are, if there's a romantic relationship. If there's a relationship. Right, and so if, if it's the only place I know of in American law where you're penalized for requesting your day in court. So when, when when a lot of people, you know, if, if, they're, if they're hit with an order of protection, they purposely don't request a hearing sure. if they work at Shooter's World or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Because if they request a hearing and it stays in place for any reason, hostile text message, mm -hmm. then they're going to become a prohibited possessor potentially. If, if they lose at the contested hearing, that's possible. Right. So, I mean, it, this notion that, well, it's, it's, you know, they have all these rights under state law. If you just check that box, don't worry about it. They don't really have any rights because if, if 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 they request a hearing, then that triggers Brady. So they're it, it's a, it's a big deal to check that box under state law because it also their only remedy is to request a hearing, which makes them a prohibited possessor also under federal law. Ultimately, if you yeah. find that they so commit it, domestic it, violence, it's one of the consequences of committing domestic violence. In most or having cases, someone say you committed domestic violence. Well, see, there, there really are two if, sides. If you feel that your case is very strong, if I were an attorney, I am an attorney in some states, but not this one, so mm. I will not say I'm an attorney today. <laughs> um, that's, that's what they're advising their clients. In most states, there's an automatic hearing. There's a contested hearing whether the defendant wants it or not. In New Jersey, it's 10 days within issue, issuance of that order. Some states, it's 15 to 20 days. In probably 49 states, there's an automatic contested hearing. So they're not spending a lot of time worrying about uh, 
the firearms thing. It's, can the plaintiff prove the case on its merits in a contested hearing? If the plaintiff can do that, then being a prohibited possessor is one of the consequences of having committed domestic violence, regardless of what the underlying act of domestic violence was. It's, it's, it's harsh. And I know from New Jersey it's way harsher because on their temporary, their ex parte order, there is a warrant to search and seize. And if that <coughs> is affirmed at that contested hearing, the defendant is never getting the guns back because there's no expiration date on the order. So they don't worry about breaking too much in New Jersey because their state law is so strong. And that state law, you jump across the river to Pennsylvania, different story. So each jurisdiction handles <coughs> these things differently. Arizona is actually somewhat more lenient in allowing the defendant to sort of guide how this is going to play out. Every Arizona order of protection restrains the defendant's conduct. This is on the face of the order of protection. Uh, about two-thirds of the way down the page, defendant cannot harass, stalk, or threaten the intimate partner or a child of the intimate partner. And that language is on every single order. So we don't actually need to check off that box. We'll look at the Brady notice. We'll see that that box is checked off for you. <coughs> and finally, there has to be a finding either that the defendant is a credible threat to the plaintiff's safety or that there's explicit language on the form. That two-letter word or is, is really big. Uh, the credible threat language is the same language that you saw under Arizona statute. So if you've made the finding of credible threat under Arizona law, you've also made it under federal law. But you don't have to under federal law because of that little word or. Every order of protection issued in an Arizona court contains explicit language. It's part of that same paragraph where we have the restraints, prohibits the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the plaintiff or other protected persons. These are all acts that are prohibited by Arizona law, so we're not bringing in any new law that's not already in place in Arizona. We already have these things. Um, there are prior versions of the form, the order protection form that were in use prior to 2013 that did not address these, and we were educated about those things by the Court of Appeals and the Ninth Circuit, both of them. Uh, there was a case in 2012, Mahar versus CUNA, which came out of the Arizona Court of Appeals Division II, where they looked at an order of protection. The previous version just said, defendant shall commit no crimes against the plaintiff. And when that form was designed years ago, the thinking was, well, that's inclusive of every single crime in Title 13. You can't get more explicit than that. But the Court of Appeals said, that's not explicit. That's implicit. Because it's not telling the defendant exactly what is prohibited. So that was an order of protection form. U.S. versus Sanchez is a case out of the Ninth Circuit in 2011, I believe. And in that case, the Court of Appeals was looking at a sentencing order. And I, I should mention that Brady can apply to any type of court order, not just Arizona's order of protection. It could be a sentencing order, a judgment of conviction. It could even be a, a, an order out of family that prohibits contact between the two. And that's going to be evaluated under the federal law standards, whether that's a, a protective order or not. 
So anyway, U.S. versus Sanchez was a sentencing order that, like the order of protection, told the defendant you are to have no contact with the victim, uh, you're no, not going to commit any crimes against the victim. The court or the, the Ninth Circuit said that's not explicit, that's implicit. You have to say some words. You don't have to say the exact words. You can say words like defendant shall not hurt the plaintiff. Defendant shall not abuse the plaintiff. And they cited circuits around the country that had language that's similar, similar in meaning but not exactly the same. Uh, I staff a committee called the Committee on the Impact of Domestic Violence in the Courts for the Supreme Court. And Civic proposed that we use the exact language from the federal statute. I took that to the Arizona Judicial Council in 2013. I explained all of this to them. I explained the effect that this would have, and they said, yeah, use that. So that form has been approved by the Arizona Judicial Council with that language, with them fully understanding the effect that having that language has on that form. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, you decided a case, and I didn't quite get the name, Marcor versus Acuna. Could you? Mahar versus Acuna. Yeah. It, you spell those names for me. Oh, first is M A H A R. Oh, explicit language one. And the second party was Acuna, A C U N A. And it's in your handout. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. I gave you all the citations for this. Oh, great. Thank you. In case oh, you it. wanted to do some extra reading. So, if you've got a case where you have a plaintiff and defendant who are intimate partners, remember that smaller, narrower group of people, you have due process, you've confirmed that there's actual notice, you've confirmed that the defendant had an opportunity to appear, then you need to look at the notice to sheriff of Brady indicator form because that's going to go to the sheriff's department. There's been some version of the notice to Sheriff of Brady and Decatur form in, in use in Arizona since the late 1990s. So this, this is not a new form. It was revised after the, the change in 2013 to the order of protection so that two boxes are already checked for you because every order has the restraints on conduct and every order has the explicit language prohibiting the use, attempted use or threatened use of physical force. So. If you can confirm those two things, the intimate partner relationship and the due process, you check off those two boxes, sign and date this form, court staff will send a copy of this form to the sheriff's department in your county. They will also provide a copy to each of the parties. When the sheriff gets this form along with proof of service and the order of protection, the sheriff will enter all of this information in the National Crime Information Center's protective order file. <coughs> NCICPOF. Uh, it's going to remain in that file for five years after this order expires. This tells law enforcement anywhere in the country if they come upon this defendant that this defendant is a prohibited possessor under federal law. Um, it's really important that for these orders to be as enforceable as possible that law enforcement everywhere can see them. So when the sheriff enters this information, they'll, they'll trip a little flag that says this person is a, a Brady prohibited possessor. There's no requirement that a defendant surrender weapons under Brady, unlike the state law. State law is very clear, tell the defendant 
when and where to draw out the weapons. Brady simply says, don't possess them. Doesn't tell them what to do. So the best advice I could give to a defendant in that situation is consult an attorney to figure out how you're going to dispossess yourself of these weapons for the duration of this protective order. So what are the consequences of being a Brady prohibited possessor? The consequences can be quite severe. The maximum fine is $250,000. The maximum time in federal prison is 10 years. It's, it's very severe. Um, what happens if you don't tell the defendant that he or she is a prohibited possessor? That person is still walking out into the world unaware that they are a prohibited possessor regardless of whether they were told. The case that we look to is U.S. versus Kafka, again a Ninth Circuit case. Uh, this is a case out of Washington State. Mr. Kafka was the defendant on an order of protection that was obtained by his ex-wife. There was a contested hearing. He lost at that contested hearing. State court judge didn't say anything to him about guns. Didn't tell him he was a prohibited possessor or anything like that. Seven months later, he stopped in a traffic stop. He tells the officer, I've got a loaded pistol. He was cited under Washington state law for carrying that without a, a permit. But worse yet, he's now a convicted felon under Brady because he had that loaded weapon while he was subject to a domestic violence order. He eventually took a plea and paid a fine, but he still got that conviction on his record. The Ninth Circuit found that it, it didn't matter that nobody told him he was a prohibited possessor. All they had to, all the prosecutor had to prove was that he knew he had a gun, which he, he did know because he told the officer he had it. That's, that's the standard. So there's no requirement that you tell this person. So when people don't do the, the whole Brady process, don't tell the defendant, they're still at risk of being a, a prosecuted by the Fed. And that's for five years after? No, they, they're a prohibited possessor for the duration of the order. Right. So let's, let's say the client comes in and dismisses the order in a week. They're no longer a prohibited possessor. Okay. If it runs its full course, it's a year. If you're in some states, it's forever. It sounds kind of unfair to not tell the defendant that there's a risk that they could be a prohibited possessor. Under the recent iteration of the Violence Against Women Act, Congress added some language that requires a fair warning to the defendant that there's a possibility that you could be a prohibited possessor because of this order. So how does Arizona give this warning to defendants? It's on the order of protection itself. On the face of that order, there's a section called warnings to defendants. They're told about it there. When the order of protection is served on the defendant, the court sends a form called the defendant's guide sheet. So the defendant understands their rights and responsibilities regarding this order. It's on there. When the defendant comes into court and fills out the approved hearing request <coughs> form, it's on there. And then finally, if the judge finds that they're a prohibited possessor, fills out that form, they get a copy of the form. So Arizona tells them quite frequently that there's a risk they could be a prohibited possessor and if they're concerned, they should consult an attorney. The Fair Warning Doctrine is part of the VAWA Act and it also flows into the Stop Grant Program. Stop Grants bring to Arizona at least $2 million a year 
in funds that are shared by victim services, law enforcement prosecutors, and courts. The governor's office administers the stop grants for Arizona. So when the governor's office accepts that money, they have to certify that Arizona is giving a fair warning to the defendant. So that's kind of why we, we warn them all over the place so that we're in compliance with that and, and don't put those funds at risk. So that's the, the mechanical stuff. If you want to pull out this bench card, I'm hoping that you'll find this very helpful because I know this does get confusing. On the first side of the bench card, you have the ex parte hearing. And you only see Arizona flags there because at this point, we're only talking about Arizona law. So this just walks you through the steps. If you've got the, the plaintiff, you need to ask about the use of firearms. You need to, to weigh the testimony. Is there a credible threat? If yes, check the box on page two of the order of protection. Order the defendant to surrender firearms. So only Arizona law at ex parte hearings. You flip it over, if you've decided that this case warrants a pre-issuance hearing or a contested hearing, defendant is getting notice of those hearings and being invited to participate. So that brings the federal law into play. So if you're in a contested hearing or a pre-issuance hearing, you do the same evaluation to find whether the defendant's a credible threat under Arizona law. Even if they're not, you need to move on to step three and look at the relationship between the parties. Step four is the due process requirements. And then step five is filling out the notice to Sheriff of Brady Indicator. I think there's some extra copies of this bench card over on the table. If you want to take a couple extra to share with your colleagues, that's fine. We, we can provide more. But this, this, I've done lots of trainings on firearms, and when I say the B word, the Brady word, things just kind of bog down because it can be very confusing. State and federal law are using some similar language. So we created the bench card hoping that you'll find it helpful when you're in that situation. Are there any questions about this? Yes, ma'am. It doesn't really go to the protective order side, but I have some clients come to me from the day job, I'm a pro tem, and say, look, I agreed to a disorderly conduct plea, it was domestic violence, disorderly conduct, and now I'm a prohibited possessor federally. What the hell happened? I don't have an answer for that because it's not anywhere in the paperwork that they give me or the plea. How does that come about and how do you end up there so that we know well, when somebody is convicted of a DV misdemeanor crime, that's when the Lautenberg Amendment kicks in. Uh, Brady, 18 U.S.C. 922 G8, Lautenberg is G9, and that says that certain misdemeanor, DV misdemeanors, can result in somebody being a prohibited possessor under Lautenberg. Those have to have a, a, an element of violence in them. So that's not going to apply to somebody who's convicted of uh, you know, kick, kicking the dog or threatening to kick the dog or something like that. It's not going to apply to the person who might be convicted of interfering with use of a telephone. These are, are the ones that involve physical violence. So that when the federal authorities determine whether somebody's allowed to learn prohibited possessor, they're going to look at the underlying state statute and evaluate it for those factors. So even though we've got that list of 30 crimes, not all of those are going to result in somebody being a Lautenberg prohibited possessor. 
And these are our misdemeanor crimes. We're not talking felonies. And misdemeanors, <coughs> Lautenberg misdemeanors are forever. There's, Brady inspires with the expiration of the order of protection. Lautenberg is a lifetime prohibition on possession. Is there an application process uh, to set aside the conviction, or how would you go about getting those gun rights back? I am not sure of the answer to that question. Um, probably if you get a set aside of the conviction under state law, that probably has an effect on that. I, I, Judge Wendy Million is the chair of CIVIC, and she knows Lautenberg far better than I do because she deals with the, the DV misdemeanors. Um, I, I would refer questions like that to her. We also do have the Domestic Violence Bench Book, which I hope you can access through Wendell. <coughs> Judge Million has written a chapter on Lautenberg in that book. Uh, like I said, she knows this stuff very well. She was actually the judge in U.S. versus Sanchez. So that one stings a little with her, but you know, that was an impetus to change the form so that, that we were explicit rather than implicit in that language. Uh, she's at Tucson City Court. Want to get more about how Lautenberg works? Yes, ma'am. You know, I just looked up the Lautenberg Amendment, and although you're right, it says the conviction of a misdemeanor domestic violence offense. Later on, it says, or the subject of a restraining order. So it is, there is a restraining order component that is also um, going to impact that military member or law enforcement. It's not only the uh, misdemeanor conviction. I, I just looked it up. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll take another look at that because I've always understood Lautenberg to apply only to convictions because we have Brady when we're talking about the civil protection. It says, or the subject of a restraining order. I'll check that out again. I think it's if you violate, say you have a, a no contact order protection, you violate, it says you can only send three text messages a day, you send a fourth text message, so you're found guilty of interfering with judicial proceedings. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to trigger yeah, a lot I'll, of I'll, I'll take a look at that. It's it's a, a, there's yeah. nine categories, it says, for yeah. restraining. Yeah. Um, you mm -hmm. mentioned. Uh, military and law enforcement. As I said earlier, Arizona statute doesn't provide any exemption for military or law enforcement to carry a, a weapon while on duty. Brady and Lautenberg, well, no, I'm going to say Brady because I'm sure about Lautenberg. Lautenberg Brady, doesn't. Brady does have an exemption for military and law enforcement to carry their duty weapon. So for some, <coughs> on, when they're considered on duty, they may be carrying that gun all the time and, and doing so lawfully. There's a question back there. When, when you schedule a pre-issuance hearing, none of the Brady can apply till after the hearing, correct? If you give the defendant notice of the hearing and the opportunity to participate, which you're, you're setting that up by having the pre-issuance hearing, and you can confirm actual notice was given to that defendant, and if they meet that smaller intimate partner relationship test, Brady will apply. Oh, well. I had a very unique circumstance that the petitioner was a DPS officer and the defendant was a DPS officer and they both worked at the headquarters and they, they occurred there. And I really had a difficult time even considering the order without some kind of pre-issuance because of the gun situation. 
-hmm. Now, that's why I'm asking you. If you schedule a pre-issuance hearing, that doesn't impact Brady until after the hearing, correct? Well, after is, is kind of iffy. The, the mere fact that you are scheduling a hearing and giving notice to the defendant and an opportunity to participate sets those wheels in motion. <coughs> so if, if actual notice is affirmed, even if the defendant doesn't show up for that hearing, if you affirm or modify that, uh, if you issue an order at that pre-issuance hearing and there is that relationship, then Brady's going to apply. May I quote this for a second? Sure. On number four, Brady, did defendant one receive actual notice of the hearing and two have an opportunity to participate in the hearing? Then if yes to both, go to step five. If no to either, Brady does not apply. Right, you have to have actual notice and the opportunity to participate. Right. So like you just said, if the defendant didn't show up, that's not that's a no. But if you know you gave that defendant actual notice, if court staff handed that defendant a notice across the counter, the defendant had actual notice. So you have to determine that the defendant had an opportunity to participate in the hearing by the notice. Is that what you're telling yeah. me? Yeah, the, the notice goes out. You know the defendant got the notice. Defendant didn't show up. Defendant waived the opportunity. So move on because Brady is going to apply. Okay. If you've gotten that far down the card. Thank you. Any more questions about firearms? Thank you. Let's short break. Start right up at 10 o'clock. All right. Let's take our seats, please. Hey, judges, please. All right, uh, and we're going to finish today with the bang. Uh, we do have a couple of dynamic presenters. Excuse me, quiet, please. Judges, thank you. We, we do have a couple of dynamic speakers. Uh, Tom Alongai is, is someone who does a lot of speaking about domestic violence and orders of protection. Uh, I saw him at the Glendale Domestic Violence Conference, and, and it's a powerful, powerful performance. He does have a lot of firsthand knowledge of domestic violence and, and their victims. Uh, Commissioner Wendy Morton is, is a double threat because uh, <laughs> she was both a lower court uh, judge for Scottsdale, and now she's a commissioner doing family court, so she's seen orders of protection from both levels, and, and they both uh, are frequent presenters on orders of protection and domestic violence, and we're really, really uh, special to have them here today. So let's give them a good hand. Good morning. Um, it's an honor for us to be here. Uh, Tom and I have been friends for a really long time, and uh, I think we agree on most things. We might disagree on a few things, but we're going to have a good, healthy discussion. Uh, one of the questions in the audience uh, this morning, and and I've had this question after every single domestic violence seminar that I've been to, and I've been doing this for over a decade, and that question is, so, so what do we do? So what do we do? Now that we know 
it's awful, it's violent, it's terrible for kids, it's, it's one of the most pervasive problems in our community, I'm always left with that question, so what do we do? And we're gonna have some suggestions for you that might um, maybe make the practice in your courts a little bit safer, or the process for orders of protection a little bit more enforceable, a little bit easier for victims, but none of us really has the magic idea of what do we do. We're not going to give you the solution for domestic violence today, but we're going to have a dialogue about the what do we do part because we all work together. And I'm right across the street uh, over at the Superior Court. I'm, you guys are um, in JPs and, and municipal court judges, so I mean we're we're all doing the same thing, and we're all we should be rowing in the same direction. Um, I see a lot of your orders and. A lot of your litigants, after after the cases are transferred to us, I can tell you what I see and some of the things that are issues. Um, but we're all going to just have a, a dialogue about the, the ultimate questions, what do we do? So we've been taking notes during the presentation. We've got some things, and we're not going to talk about our notes yet. We're going to talk about our presentation first. But then at the end, we'll go through our notes, we'll go through your notes, we'll make sure you've got all your questions covered. In your PowerPoint um, handout, I have given you a, a massive soup to nuts, top to bottom presentation that I do for our judges. Uh, I train our judges and commissioners. I'm the presiding family court commissioner. So not only do I have the orders of protection, but I also have the family court fallout of the orders of protection. I, this is my life. I, I, this is what I do every single day. Um, I get all the ripple effects of all of, you know, even my own orders. So. This is uh, top to bottom. We're not going to go over every slide of that presentation because that presentation really covers all kinds of different practice levels. If you've never done it before, to if you're more experienced and you need just a little bit of uh, refresher. So we're not going to go through the nuts and bolts of how to do it because we all assume that you all, you know, we're going to sort of fine tune things today. But if there's anything in my presentation that you have any questions about or anything in the handout, you can either ask when we're done or you can always email me my information. The contact information is on there. You can email, call anytime if you have any questions about that. So, um, so that's the presentation handout. You've got it and, um, and feel free to enjoy it. And then um, we'll do our presentation today and then please ask us any questions if you may have any questions. And then we'll also go over our notes at the end as well. So. So, um, so the first slide is, is who's first, and this is really um, this is really to talk about who it is that is in front of you. Who is your plaintiff? Um, we and Kay did a, a great. Kay's my New Jersey buddy. Represent. So excited. We have a very heavy concentration of East Coasters here. Charlie is an East Coaster also. So, uh, so um, I'm happy uh, happy about that. But anyway, um, who is the plaintiff? Um, and as Kate uh, talked about, you know, we're talking about intimate partner, we could be talking about a family member, we could be talking about a roommate. Uh, we could be talking about, and I've had, for some reason, I don't know if it's spring is in the air right now, but I've had in the last week four parents coming in on behalf of teenage daughters who are having sex with teenage boyfriends. And it could be, it could be that scenario. Um, then good luck trying to solve that problem. That's a whole other seminar. But 
That's a 1.30. Yeah, that's yeah. a 1.30. <laughs> uh, that'll be over lunch. Um, so the question is who, who is, who is your plaintiff? Now, I'm not gonna, the obvious plaintiff is, you know, intimate partner or parent or, or that, that's the obvious. But sort of the non-obvious and, and the thing that we've had a little bit of issue with lately is if somebody is coming in on behalf of somebody else, and that can happen if you find that that person is an appropriate person to come in on behalf of somebody else. So let's say, um, and, and these are third-party requests. If you have, um, I had a case uh, where a, a woman came in on behalf of her uh, mother because her mother had been run over by her mother's new boyfriend. Her mother was uh, like in her 70s, and the new boyfriend had run over the mother with the car and put her in ICU. And the adult daughter came in to ask for an order of protection to keep the boyfriend from coming to the ICU and, and you know, further harming the mother or traumatizing her. And um, for all I know, the mother had no idea that her daughter was, was even there asking for an order of protection. I had no idea that the mother even wanted the order of protection. But uh, we can ask, uh, I asked her uh, what was going on and if, Somebody is asking for an order of protection on somebody else, uh, for somebody else, on behalf of someone else. If that person is either temporarily or permanently unable to make that request on their own behalf, we have to determine if the third party is appropriate to request uh, that relief. If we find that that person is uh, appropriate, we can issue that order of protection. And, and I did. Um, now, where would that go? That uh, and let's, it looks a little funny, so I just want to uh, kind of we wanted to mention that. Let's go to the next slide, I think. Um, you won't see this on the. You order. won't see that. <laughs> so, on the plaintiff line, the plaintiff is the mom. The plaintiff is the person <coughs> for whom the order of protection is being sought. But right at, right underneath of that, will be the person who's seeking the order of protection on their behalf. That person actually will be the person who signs the petition for the order of protection on behalf of the plaintiff. So uh, I, I see that we see that in a lot of different ways. It's kind of sometimes um, the plaintiff is listed as a protected party, the, the person for whom the order of protection is being requested, but the person for whom the order of protection is being requested should be listed as the plaintiff. The person who is doing the asking on their behalf should be listed right underneath and it should say on behalf of, and then they sign it on behalf of, of mom or whoever. Now, this is uh, appropriate if mom is incapacitated. Uh, we have a lot of elderly uh, parents who, you know, they might have Alzheimer's, they may be of advanced age, they can't get to the court, and I feel silly asking, like, because I see, okay, I know it says 1925 on here, and, you know, but I have to ask, can mom get down here by herself? And the answer is no, because that's, by asking if they're an appropriate person to ask for that on their behalf. A police officer can come in and ask for an order of protection. We had, um, not too long ago, police victim advocate came down and asked for an order of protection on behalf of the victim because the victim, when she went to report, the victim was pregnant, and when she went to report the order of protection, she had been so battered that she suffered a miscarriage in, in the detective's office. And so they sent a victim advocate uh, to ask for an order of protection on her behalf. Those are occasions when you can do that. Um, if an attorney comes down and says, my client is at work, no. That's not, it's not for convenience purposes. It's if they can't do it themselves. So 
if the plaintiff parachuted uh, down from there and uh, can't get to court, you know, that, that might be a valid reason if they're stuck, not if they're on vacation. So that's, that's how you interpret <laughs> in two different ways. So if it's for convenience purposes, no. But if, if they can't come down, if they're incapacitated, <coughs> either permanently or temporarily, uh, somebody can ask for order of protection on something, something else. One of the things, in fact, the thing that um, Commissioner Morton and I were asked to make sure we talked about today was the intersection between family court and, and protective order court. We, in addition to, to practicing law, I'm also a judge pro tem in the Superior Court, so I, I get the lucky chance from time to time to cover a calendar, like a protective order calendar or even family court. And um, the one thing that I, I wanted to make sure I talked about today um, it, it's something that you won't see in the code, but it's probably something you all sense as justices of the peace or the jurisdiction judges in any other context, which is that you know when a, when a plaintiff is coming in and there's other stuff going on, family court, kids are involved. We've already touched on it this morning. And I want you to, even if you can't make custody rulings and or parenting time, and even if you can't fix everything that's going on down the hallway in front of the Superior Court judge's calendar, it never hurts to remember that just by her coming into you, and I, I know I'm saying, I should make a caveat right now, the use of pronouns, he and she, I, you know, I was a prosecutor for years, <coughs> prosecuted both men and women for domestic violence. We all get in this room that men and women both do commit domestic violence. In another seminar, another time, we'd be happy to talk about the dynamics of who does it more, why, the statistics about the severity of the violence, the motivation for it, because those are all rich topics for discussion. But when I say he and she today, I want you to know in advance, I get that the violence occurs between genders both ways. Um, so forgive me, it's not my intention to come across as biased. So having said that, um, if, if the victim comes into your courtroom, the alleged victim comes in your courtroom, and you may be the very first person in, a, in an authority position that she has approached to disclose what's been going on in her home. This may be something she kept secret for years. And every victim who comes into your courtroom who's contending with children, what to do with them, faces what I call a trilemma. And, and I'm actually... I, I, I get upset because this doesn't occur to family courts more often, and by extension, other courts too, criminal, juvenile, and, and protective order court. She's really got three choices. She can stick around at home and do what she's always done, try to work it out. The statistics, statistics suggest that the average survivor goes back into the home seven to eight times before finally leaving for good. So if you are getting a survivor in your courtroom applying for a protective order, you may not be getting time number seven or time number eight. You may be getting number three or number four. It, it, it's an incremental process, almost like watching waves come in in a tide. You know, it comes in up to here, goes back a little bit. Back up to here, back a little bit. And if you're dumb enough to lie down in a blanket and fall asleep below the high tide mark, one day you wake up and now the high tide's washing over you because she's finally made the decision to break and do it. Don't make the mistake of assuming that her appearance in front of you means that she has reached that point yet. Because it could be an intermediate stage. So she's, she may be still muddling in her mind, is this the right thing to do? You know, Wendy and I, we were talking in the car on the way down here about the obstacles that survivors put in their own minds about, am I doing the right thing? Should I just walk out the door? 
if I if I have to wait here more than five or ten minutes to be heard, should, should I just go ahead and go home and maybe work it out a little bit more? All that's going through their heads. So she's still debating, could I stay home and, and, and stay put? Choice number two, I can take the kids and book. Forget this court stuff, I'm out of here. The guy threatened to kill my kids, he threatened to kill me. I'm not waiting around to see what happens. The prosecutor's office tells me they can't guarantee jail time, that he'll most he'll get 48 hours. They keep calling it a probation and eligible offense, he'll get diversion, so why am I even bothering making a report? I'm out of here. And of course, then they face the prospect of living their life as a fugitive, always wondering, will this be the day that the police knock on my door because my bad word finally found me under my assumed name, and now the kids go back, and of course, what are her chances of ever seeing the kids again? No family court will ever give it the kids again because she abducted with them. And then the third choice, she can take off and leave the kids behind for her own sake, a last-ditch effort to protect herself. And you can imagine how many you know, women want to leave their kids behind in this situation. Mo not most times, but a lot of times, the breaking point, that time number seven or time number eight, the reason they do leave for good is because the violence has now shifted from them to the children in the home. Now you're probably wondering, what on earth does this have to do with protective orders? My answer is everything. Because that's the debate going on inside her head when she stands in front of you and says, will you put the kids on the order? I know it is vogue these days to get irritated with domestic violence survivors um, who come into the courtroom and say, I want to put the kids on, and if you're not going to put the kids on, then there's no point in my being here. To, to someone who observes from the outside, that looks like manipulation of your court. They might think, well, obviously you're not here for protection, you're just here to get a custody order. So go down the hallway. Now, legally, that's a correct statement to make. It is important to educate survivors that that is a necessary step. You can't use protective order courts to accomplish through the back door what the family law, Title 25, would require you to do the front. I bring it up here because I don't want you to have the knee-jerk reaction that just because she makes that request, there's something inherently dishonest about her, that she's playing with you. I, I just want to mention, um, before we get to the, the elephant room, which is the kids on the order in more detail, um, I want to tell you a personal story. Um, I have a friend, she was my, she was in my uh, wedding party. She lives in Pennsylvania. Her name uh, is Leslie. And she is a nurse by, by trade. She is uh, in a 20-year marriage to a guy who is a jerk. He, he treats her terribly. Um, he gave her a black eye once. He pushed her down the steps once. He broke uh, a glass frame behind their bed and shattered it everywhere, glass everywhere. Um, and she has two kids. They have two children together, 13 and 16. And she calls me on occasion. She's developed a bad drinking problem as a result of trying to cope with this uh, issue. Her husband is a steam fitter in Pennsylvania. The economy's really up and down. He's been out of work for very long periods of time. And she never knows, and, and I know this because she tells me, you know, she does not know from one day to the next what she's coming home to. Uh, a lot of times he's just home drinking all day and she's working. She's the one paying all the bills. She's the one doing everything with the kids. Uh, and, he'll, and she'll come home and he'll be tapping his watch, where have you been if she's five minutes late? Now, 
I was a sex crimes prosecutor. I was a domestic violence prosecutor. I've been a judge since 2002. This is what I do every single day. She's a nurse. And I remind her constantly, you have had the same training that I have had in, in domestic violence. You see every day the effects of domestic violence. And I've talked to her about, you know, leaving and getting a safety plan and getting an order of protection. She won't do it. And, and she said to me, all of the classic things that victims say, I'm staying for the kids, even though we say, you're training the children on how to be victims of domestic violence. All of those things she knows, that she, and she said this to me, I know it intellectually, but I just can't do it. And every day I think of her when I have litigants in my court, because I want to run the kind of court that if Leslie came, if she finally got the courage, because to this day she has not gotten the courage to do it, I've, I've given her you know, as much resources as I can give her from where I sit. We've even had her talk to people in Arizona from shelters so that she, not to talk to people in Pennsylvania. She's afraid to talk to anybody in Pennsylvania because she thinks somebody's going to find out. So I know that if she's got to wait more than five or ten minutes to come see a judge, she's going to leave. I know what it's taking for her to come in to ask for an order of protection because we've had this conversation over the years and she won't do it. So I understand. And so um, when Raquel came in this, uh, this morning, when Raquel talked to you, she's our unbelievable victim advocate who works in our court. Um, when she comes in with a victim who is hysterical because the guy actually came to court, this happened last week in my court, he came to court stalking her, trying to talk to her. We want to make sure that that is a safe environment. And so that's the, that's the one, you know, what can we do? That's the one thing. The one thing we can do is get them in fast. Be empathetic, be sympathetic, be compassionate, be patient. Understand what Tom says about you may issue the seventh order of protection that they've had. And every time they come in and get it dismissed, tell them they can get another one. Give them a safety plan. And just be patient and understand that that tide's going to roll in and roll back and roll in and roll back and it's going to frustrate the heck out of me. But I want to make sure that I know that if, if somebody like her, and I know because there's lots of family members who sit in court um, who are there because they finally said, look, I will take you there. And I would be there for her if, if she needed me, if I were there physically in Pennsylvania. So I know that their friends and family members have said the same thing to them as my as I've said. Get out. What are you waiting for? What are you going to, you know, all of that. And you just got to keep being patient. Yeah. Hi. Um, when an order of protection is dismissed for FDA failure to appear of the plaintiff, um, is that a dismissal with or without prejudice? It, it's it's always it. It's, if it doesn't say it doesn't it, it doesn't matter because if an order of protection is dismissed, a person can still come in and ask. So it's always without prejudice because we don't say with or without prejudice because that's that's a that's a criminal justice term. That's not a term that we need to use in an order of protection. Orders of protection. You can get an order of protection, you can dismiss an order of protection, you can get another order of protection. If it's dismissed because they don't show up, they can get another order of protection. They can based on, based on the same acts? It depends on, you know, I will, I'll, I'll ask them why why they weren't there. 
if they if they tell me you know I wasn't there because he took my phone and took all my mail and I didn't get notice or whatever, then I'm going to grant I may grant the same order on the same acts. It, it all depends on what the facts are. It's um. Rule 10 of the protective order procedures does make it clear that there's no limit, if you will, on the number of orders you can get. But I think I get what you're saying. I had to litigate a case like that in a completely different context, but the, the idea was the same. It, it, was, it was, of all things, a driving while suspended case. I used to be a prosecutor many moons ago. And to, to be convicted for felony driving while suspended, you had to have three predicate priors for driving while suspended. And we would occasionally get these cases where the person would commit one, two, and three, and then go out and commit a fourth. And so we would argue, okay, we're not using one, two, and three again. We're using two, three, and four. And if you did it again, now we're using three, four, and five. And the case actually went to the Kansas Supreme Court. I mean, the cases they turned away, but they took that one, right? <laughs> and, and they agreed with us that that, that, is not, that, that that does not bar a prosecution because you're not using... This, almost like those creepy Venn diagrams they made us look at when we were kids, when the circles overlap each other. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, well, it's, it was different because we were taking not the exact same data, we were doing this. Same thing with domestic violence. I suppose, there's, I can't find any case on this, and I've always wondered, I suppose there might come a circumstance someday where a plaintiff comes in, tries to get a protective order, defendant challenges it, goes to a trial, quashed for insufficient evidence. And so she comes back in like a week later and alleges the exact same things all over again. I suppose there might be an argument that that's race judicata, that's claim preclusion. You had your shot on that evidence. But what I try to do, usually with, with domestic violence, there's so many other acts that have gone on. So when I'm helping, I'm not a judge, when I'm actually helping a client, what I usually say is, look, as long as there's been some other conduct, something new, to tie in with what happened before, not only is that legal, you want to do that because you want to show the court there's a continuing course of conduct. It's not just some isolated blob that popped up on the radar and can just be handled with in isolation. That's how batterers get away with this stuff. They thrive on compartmentalizing, fragmenting. Let's just look at this. Let's just look at this. Um, it reminds me almost of that, that Rodney King prosecution where they took each frame of, of the video. If you watch the video from start to finish, the guy's getting the heck beat out of him. But if you, the, the defense was really skillful. Each little part, well, here was that and here was this, and before you know it, you got an acquittal. And there may have been other reasons why he was acquitted. They, they were acquitted too, but I, I think that as long as you have extra evidence, you can, like Wendy says, go back right in and, 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 and try again. I don't want to know what their reason is for not yeah, my question was premised yeah. on not additional or different facts, but same yeah. facts, same one, I two, three. You gotta have a reason. Gotta have a reason, have a I, I reason. couldn't make it to court. So some I couldn't make it because I had to, you know, I've had people I couldn't make it because I was in the hospital. Okay, that's a good reason. Or I couldn't sure. make it because I had a hair appointment. I had that too. Dentist okay. appointment, couldn't, couldn't get off from work. Well, that's not good enough. You know, that's not good enough. So, you know, you have to decide do you have, do you have a, a valid reason why. We've had, We've had people, um, we had a lady who was locked in the closet. He locked her in the closet and went to court. She couldn't get, it. She couldn't get out. So I didn't even answer your question. So, that was useless information. But, but I, so I would, want to know, I would want to know what the reason is. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that um, 
if they are coming in and they habitually drop, that's why I like the discussion from the Sojourner representatives this morning about psychological abuse. This is a, a project in progress. You know, what do we do with that information? It's not really in 1336.01. There's no crime called psychological abuse. And even the idea of introducing that kind of evidence in family courts met with a lot of resistance because there are people who feel like, how do you distinguish between two people who just don't get along versus a psychologically abusive relationship? But it, it, is, it is an important thing to keep in the back of your mind if you are at some point evaluating the credibility of the witnesses. Because if you have, the other thing that batterers do really well is they're polished. They come into court very stately, all prepared. They might or might not have a lawyer. The alleged victim is a bubbling emotional mess, can't think straight, emotionally incapacitated, disabled, might not even be able to construct a sentence or remember specific dates and times. Well, we've been trained, legally trained for decades, some of us, to, to prize cold analytical facts over emotion. We don't like it when people break down crying in the courtroom, but if you have someone who's been conditioned for years to believe that she deserves what she got, that she, that she really is ugly, she really is fat, she really is stupid, she really never could get any other man to like her if he didn't take her, she has no business getting a career, you say that enough times to someone, they're gonna start to buy it, and it will affect the way that they present themselves in court. When you're asking them questions, when he's asking them questions on cross. So the reason I bring that up here is because even though you can't make a finding, I have determined that you are a victim of psychological abuse, when you are weighing, if you have a case that's a close call, and it's a, it really comes down to credibility, believability, I'm not saying you have to necessarily rule in favor of the plaintiff every time just because she's crying. But I would also encourage you not to find that she's incredible simply because she seems to have trouble remembering dates and times and places. It doesn't necessarily mean she's lying to you. And it doesn't mean she's playing with you. She might not be able to construct the, the narrative because she's been traumatized. And so I, that, that's the echoing I would do with what you heard about an hour and a half ago. So um, I, I take the blame for most of these goofy pictures. If it's classy and tasteful, it's hers. And if it's ridiculous, it's mine. This is what happens when you I'm a kind of a perfectionist. I like adding stuff the last minute, and this was like, you know, okay, obnoxious. Um, my, my parents had it. I have to add this is a personal story. My parents had a deal. I don't get these people who fight over custody. My parents had a deal. Whoever left had to take the kids with them, and they stayed together for 48 years, okay? So... But I recognize there are people who care about putting kids on order. So this is the elephant in the room Wendy was talking about. So here's protective order rule 5B1. And I'm only showing you subsection B because A is pretty self-evident. If you pull up this rule, A allows you to include a child in a protective order if the physical harm may result or has resulted the child. That's a pretty easy standard to follow. I think where we start to haggle or wonder where to draw the line is this nebulous phrase, did the DV involve the child? And I'm, there are like 25 of us, 30 in the room. Wendy and I probably disagree on this too. <laughs> are we close to that? Yeah, I think we're pretty close. 
That's disappointing. <laughs> Disagreements have right, fun. Thank you. All right. So over here, you have, you have the obvious extremes. If the kid was personally struck by the assailant and injured, that's easy. Similarly, over here, if the kid wasn't anywhere around, never next ever happened before, and the kid found out about it three days later when he came back from camp, I think, and I tend to be pr pretty, uh, liberal is the right word, but I tend to be really looking to make sure that kids are okay when I give a protective order. I'm not sure even I'd be comfortable doing that because the kid wasn't involved. The kid wasn't there. The kid wasn't hurt, didn't see it, didn't hear it, wasn't traumatized by it. There may be an ongoing problem that will have to be addressed in family court in terms of role modeling by a batterer with kids who are growing up. But the trick is where do we all fall on this spectrum? And I bet if you polled us all in here, we might have different ideas. Um, you know, if the kid was in the next room and heard it but didn't see it, is that enough? If the kid wasn't crying and didn't seem particularly responsive to it, if, you know, if the kid called 911, and, and I do have some examples too. Yeah, so I, I had a case where um, mom, was, mom was screaming uh, for help, and the daughter, this was back, I'm dating myself, but this was a, an actual phone that had wires in the wall, and the child was on the phone with 911, and dad came and pulled the wires out. And the daughter ran down this, I think she was like 12, she ran out of the house, and it was like an apartment complex, and she went banging on the doors to try to get help, and dad ran after her. So that child stayed on the order of protection. Uh, that, that child was clearly involved. If you have mom who's severely injured and the child is calling for 911 and the child is physically interjecting him or herself to try to protect mom or something is thrown and the child gets hit instead of mom, you know, those, we're, the, the rules, and I know that the rules have been um, sort of reordered um, and, and simplified, but the rules haven't changed when it comes to this issue. And the, the basis of the rules and the, the reason that the RPOC rules were designed the way they were is to contemplate what, what the framers of the rules call the zone of danger. If the children are within the zone of danger, then you know, perhaps the children were involved under the under the stat, you know, under the rule, then then the children should be on. I'm I'm much less liberal when it comes to putting children on the orders. I try I, 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 especially the common, now, and let me make sure you understand, if they're not common children and there's an act of domestic violence against the, the parent that they belong to, they go on the order without having to make these findings. This is just the common children. So I am pretty strict about putting children on, on orders of protection. I, um, but if I, see, if I see a child that's involved, that's in the zone of danger, like like those examples that they they go on and they stay on. You're all going to have your own take on that, and that's okay. I mean, this is why you're judges. You, you exercise discretion, and the appellate courts will usually uphold that discretion as long as it's not abused. So there's it's perfectly okay. The front row here, if you guys are more here, and the next row here, like that. There was a discussion about an hour ago about. Um, you know, how to handle the situation, what are the repercussions if I check off the box for credible threat for firearms. And, I, and, and we can replicate that same fear, what's going to happen if I do this? Will some other consequence come down the road? 
I've noticed that in domestic violence intervention in particular, there seems to be so much fear of, well, if I do this, what's going to happen here? Not just the survivors do, we stakeholders do it. When you're, when you're a crisis center worker advising a client what to do or an attorney, I think there reaches a point, though, where you can so overthink it and so worry about what the consequences are that you have no control over that you almost outbox yourself and, 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 and instead of just voting your conscience. So I, I guess the, the, the point I would make here, there is a case now, it came out in 2014, Courtney versus Foster. It makes it clear that superior courts have plenary Title 25 authority to amend your protective order if they think it's appropriate to do something different with the children. Um, I regard that as being a liberating force for you because whereas in the past you might have been worried because Judge Foster's position, the reason it got reversed was because Judge Foster's concern was, hey, we've got this valid protective order. He's, you know, she's gotten her one hearing. The, the, the defendant was the mother in that case. I'm not, I can't, I have no authority to go back and change this protective order. And the Court of Appeals said, of course you do, because you have decision-making authority, no pun intended. You have authority over what to do with these kids. Let me throw out three things before I want to get you. Number one, if you're going to leave the child, if you're going to not put the child on the order of protection, you cannot, please, 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 please do not put a strict no contact order where they can communicate at all. Because that's a that's effectual that's basically giving custody one to the other. Uh, and I just had two in the last two weeks out of the out of the city court whose name I shall not mention, that it was parties have uh, common children, common children are not on the order, parties are gonna have no contact whatsoever. That's impossible. And so in my PowerPoint uh, is my standard language, feel free to steal it. Um, you have my permission. That's the standard language that I use when they have children together. I ask them, how do you want to communicate? By email, by phone, by text? And I put, the common children are not, N-O-T, capital, not on this order of protection. This is, not a, this is not a custody or parenting time order. Defendant is not prohibited from seeing his children. Defendant may only communicate by phone only and only to discuss the party's children. No other contact is permitted. No other type of contact is permitted. Okay, so that's number one. I, there's a lot in, uh, in my uh, PowerPoint about the other orders box. If, if you take away nothing from me for the rest of the day, please take away that the other orders box should be, and I have the devil on there. It's the devil. It will get you in trouble. It will cause your orders to be very unenforceable. Okay? The more you put in the other orders box, the more trouble you're looking for. So if you put down uh, how many text messages they can send per day, no police officer is going to enforce that. If you put down how many emails they can send or how many phone calls they can make, that's getting into parenting time orders. Do not put parenting time orders, even quasi-parenting time orders, in orders of protection. Don't put where they can pick up and drop off the kids. Please don't put that if, they, if the kids aren't on the order, they can go to the house to pick up curbside. Uh, What's the most dangerous time for parents besides the time that they leave? It's the time that they pick up and drop off the kids. It's the time that they are looking the kids over up and down <coughs> and videotaping and audio taping each other. It's the time of highest conflict. It doesn't make any sense if they are violent toward each other, if it's not safe for them to be together, that they be together only at the very most conflict fraught time. And, and you laugh, but we actually had 
we actually had a Superior Court judge, he's a colleague of mine, God bless him, I will not tell you his name, but there, and he's not on the rotation anymore, but dad threatened mom with a knife, and the only contact that was allowed was pick up and drop off at the curb. What makes that safe? What, what is the magic detail about being at the curb in front of the house that makes it any more or less safe than any other place? And I would submit to you it doesn't. So if it's a keep away order, it's a keep away order. That's it. Um, but they have to be able to communicate about the kids if the kids aren't going to be on the order. Um, if, oh, I was going to say something else about it. So please keep your other order section. Like, I would avoid it like the plague. Um, the other thing you need to know, and I'm sure you guys have all experienced this, what they put on the petition, I want the kids, I want his kids, I want her kids, I want my every relative, I want every place I might possibly be. Um, and you just give the order of protection to the plaintiff and nobody else. Then they go take it to the police and they say, look, my kids are on the order and they show the police officer the petition. And the police officer doesn't look at the order, they look at the petition. And it says, this is not a court order right on top of the petition. You have all, you know this, right? Police officers, we are working on training like crazy, but there are times when, um, like Tom said with the firearms, your firearms are gonna beg that hearing. Your kids on the order are gonna beg that hearing. You're gonna, you're gonna make that hearing happen, that's okay. Don't be afraid to put the kids on the order if there's a danger to the kids or if the kids involved. If there's a hearing, there's a hearing, that's fine. But sometimes if you liberally put the kids on the order just because, as a matter of course, if that's your policy, and we have a hearing, sometimes that the loss of that and the kids are taken off the order, because I think about 90% of the kids are removed after hearing. Uh, that's been my experience. That emboldens the other side. That, that, makes it, that could sometimes make it more dangerous to see. They didn't believe you that I was a danger to the kids. So now I get, now the kids are off the order, and now, now it becomes worse. We can't anticipate every fluctuation that we have a ripple effect. Sometimes we think we're doing a good thing, but, but it has a reverse effect. Just think about it. Um, sometimes that could cause more problems than, than not. And I want to get it, It's easier for me to put the kids on the order if she's standing in front of you with a waiver uh, filing page form for Superior Court and she's going to file in Superior Court for divorce next week and you know that your case is going to be transferred and the family court judge is going to hear everything anyway. They're not going to hear everything anyway unless the other person asks for a hearing. Well, at least the, at least it'll all be in front of one judge though. Right. With the problem we have, and it's maybe especially a problem with Northwest, because we have family court uh, judicial offices in our building, and that's the, not the order protection scenario, it's the injunction scenario. And we have, yes. and, it, and it's usually, um, ex-wife does yes. not like new living yes, girlfriend exactly. and they they lose in family court walk down the hall get an injunction against harassment against the, the thing they just lost in family court we don't know they just lost in family court and we're getting uh, she's hitting my kids she's using drugs in front of my kids da, 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 da. Right. if I put kids on that injunction it's not being transferred back anywhere because yeah, I'm modifying right. the child custody order literally, right. and I can't transfer it back to family court because family court won't take it because the parties are different. Right. To me, that's a perfect place for a pre-issuance hearing. So you know what? I'm going to get both parties in front of me and I'm going to hear what's going on. Yep. Because then yep. you're not, you know, that's that's just, I want to hear from both parties. Let and let the emotions die down. Yeah. And, and just, you know, doing drugs in front of the kid, that's, 
I don't think that's enough. Hitting the kid, definitely. Okay, but then you're looking at when did that happen? Because a lot of times it's I'm here in March and that happened in December. Okay, and what's going on? And I might set a pre-issuance hearing if it's not an emergent issue. And in the end, and that's why through the bit about voting your conscience. I mean, in the end, thinking it through, there's been no shortage of energy in family court these days. Not always for better, but but often for better. There has been a lot of energy in family court about promoting equal access, joint decision making. It really is all the rage right now. And um, I have to believe that in that scenario where someone comes down dishonestly into your courtroom and, and manipulates you, if, if you look at the evidence and you believe it's appropriate and you thought you were doing the right thing and the kid's on there, hard to believe anyone's going to blame you if later on father comes back and says, hang on, there's a remedy for it. At some point, we have to trust people to use the system that's designed for them. Go to family court. They certainly have sanctions available for people who misuse a limited jurisdiction court. Um, I would just hate to see the reverse happen where, for fear that that's going on, you deny the protection, and it turns out actually something really awful was happening. But I would echo Wendy about 99% of what she said. I, I think if I knew a kid had actually been struck by someone, I might go ahead and put no contact with the kid on, on the fear that taking a phone call from a guy who had just punched that kid in the face might be upsetting or traumatic for the child too. But I would certainly expect and probably even tell the parties in court that, hey, just so you know, you know that there's a long-term procedure in family court for handling this and just so you got, you're going to have to go there at some point and resolve this. And Charlie asked me to mention, um, we, we cannot do anything temporarily with orders of protection. There can't be a temporary 30-day no contact. There can't be a temporary 30-day exclusive use. Orders of protection are, are last from a year from the data service and less than until they are modified or dismissed by the party or the court. So there, there's no such thing as a 30-day. We do not have the right to do that. There, the, the court has since, that, that used to happen long, long time ago, the court, we've had a court, a statewide um, video telecast, we've had bench books issued, we've had all kinds of training since then, so please do not put, you know, anything on a self-expiring term for, for anything, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, we, we are trying to do that in one area, and that's, for lack of a better term, I call it a reverse civil standby, because I don't know what else to call it. And we're actually we're, we're going to try to work on the best practices for it. And that's when the victim wants to go back to the abuser's house and get her stuff. That's perfect, because I'm going to talk to you about a scenario that just happened. And, okay. And, and I hope that that addresses that. Okay. Issue. You have used up your quota. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a perfect that's segue to, to okay. um, this case. So let's just, Here we go. Um, let's just go right to Carol. Okay. So that's a perfect segue. Carol. Uh, Carol Sanders was in my court on November 12th of 2013. She came in, uh, both parties had counsel. Uh, Michael Sanders and Carol Sanders both had counsel. Carol first, she had an order of protection that involved her 14-year-old daughter, Audra. She asked for Audra to be removed from the order of protection. Uh, Mr. Sanders insisted on having a hearing. He wanted his hearing with respect to, that's Audra right there. Uh, Mr. Sanders insisted on having a hearing as, as to Carol. Um, and this is the three of them. Let's leave it here for one sec. You bet. We had a hearing. Uh, the acts of domestic violence were that uh, Michael drove them out to the desert and told them it was a good day to, to die and showed them a gun. Uh, he uh, 
hit Carol on another occasion on a family vacation. She kept going back, kept going back. The, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back for her was uh, she went shopping uh, one day for dinner. Uh, she made a stop along the way somewhere else. She called him. I guess she had fish, and it was the summertime. He went ballistic because she had wasted the money making that other stop. He said, don't you, you know, you have fish in the car, and you stopped at Home Depot, or are you out of your mind? Blah, and he totally blew up at her. Uh, she came home. He met her in the garage and started taking all the groceries out and throwing them at her. Uh, pushed her up against the wall and, and just threw the groceries everywhere. She finally came in and got an order of protection. We had the hearing. The order of protection was upheld after the hearing. Like I said before, the child was taken off by her at her request because she said, um, we have a reconciliation plan in family court. That was her safety net, or what she thought was a safety net. After the order of protection uh, hearing, uh, she was out of the home. She wanted to go back to the home to go get her stuff. Parties walked around uh, with their lawyers in the hallway for 30 minutes after the hearing, arranging for a time for her to go back to the home to get her stuff. Uh, he said, I won't be there. This is the time. Well, he wasn't there. Uh, he had a neighbor call because he told his neighbors, I'm having trouble with somebody breaking into my garage. Will you call me if anybody comes to my house? So the neighbor called, not knowing what was going on. Michael came back. Uh, Carol had brought her daughter who she told me was in danger, but she brought her daughter to the house. She brought her brother to the house. Michael came out, killed the brother in the driveway, went into the garage, killed the 14-year-old daughter, and killed Carol, dragged her in the backyard, set her body on fire, and killed himself. Four hours after they had been in my court. So, I want to go back to the residence to get my stuff. I would say, what stuff are you willing to die for? That's what UPS is for. That's what a storage facility is for. If they're out of the house and they're safely out of the house, then uh, they go back with a law enforcement officer to get their stuff. She knew that she could do that. The lawyer, her lawyer said, you can go back with a civil standby to get your stuff. She said 15 minutes is not enough time. So I'm going to tell you the second story. The second story is the story of Sarah Drewer. Sarah Drewer did the same thing. Sarah Drewer got an order of protection. She was safely out of the house. She went back to get the diaper bag, the baby supplies, the diapers, et cetera. She took their three-year-old going back to the house. Husband was there, threatened her with a gun. A workman was across the street, happened to hear the, the ruckus, and, and risked his life to go help her. Took that child across the street, said, I'm going to take the child, and walked across the street with the child, and father killed himself and her her first and then obviously himself because she went back to get stuff. So I'm a little sensitive about the going back to get stuff thing. Now this wasn't a case that was in front of me, but uh, Carol Sanders was. And I don't know, if, you know, I guess it's just uh, the benefit of having been around long enough where you have this awful crap happen because of the, you know, horrible violence that domestic violence wreaks on our community. Uh, they mentioned this morning, the Sojourner folks mentioned, we're fourth in the nation in homicides last year. And um, these homicides both had valid orders of protection. Sarah's hadn't had a hearing yet, but Carol's had a hearing. And, and Brady applied. And we went over Brady. And, by the way, at hearing, he made a big show of telling me, here, 
You want to see my bill of sale? I've already gotten rid of my weapons. He made a big show of that, I remember, because he had the piece of paper and his lawyer said, do you want to see it? And I said, no, because it didn't matter. And he can sell, as, as we've seen, he can sell 20 weapons and have one left. So um, I'm going to propose to you that that's just not a safe practice and just don't do it. Um, if they need to get stuff, they should go back with a law enforcement officer or they should make arrangements, put it in storage, put it in the mail, do something else. But you know, if they're going to put themselves in harm's way, there's nothing you can do about it. But I wouldn't be putting anything on the orders of protection that would facilitate that. Yes. Um, I had the, I issued the original order for Miss Yes, because uh, it came out as justice. And what was, what was ironic about that is I said to her, she told me the story about Lake Pleasant, and I said, now, there's a family law, a family, you can go to family court and file here, and she promised me that's where she was going. After I gave her the order, I held up the order and I said, this doesn't stop at 45. Now, let me tell you something. Every time I'm issuing an order now, I'm telling that story. Because they have to understand that they have some responsibilities. And I use that point and I feel like I'm responsible for that because I didn't no. convince her mm -hmm. to not put herself in that position because not only had he done that, he had set the stage with the neighbors by going by for some period of time before they were there because he had that plan. Right. And he had threatened her that he was going to burn her daughter more than once. And the jealousy was between him and the daughter and her relationship, not anything else. And the guy was nuttier than a fruitcake. But, but you know what? But he wasn't nuttier than a fruitcake in my court. In my court, well, he was a good hunter. He was, he was exactly like Tom said. He was very controlled. He was very. So this was a classic. She was very scattered, all of that. Yeah. But one thing that I'll say, and I think it's a good idea to talk about this case because I think it's very, very instructive. And if nothing else comes of it, we all learn from it. I think we have to learn from it. But one thing that upset me the most is that in the media, and especially after Sarah Drewer's case, there was an article in the, um, in the Republic. And it basically said, you know, this all of this goes to show victims of domestic violence that there's really nothing that they can do to keep themselves safe because this is just a piece of paper. And and that is not true. Because both and I and I please, I I'm not blaming the victims, but there is something that victims can do, and that's to take some responsibility in keeping themselves safe and not go back. Not, not go back for stuff. I mean, I, we can't control the dynamic of them going back and forth and all of that, but, but to have a, have a feeling that an order of protection or a family court reconciliation situation or anything is gonna be a, a protective shield is, is it's, it's a panacea. And in this case, both of these women went back for property. And I, I so I, I would say, no, no reverse orders, just say no contact and let them, you know, I, I would encourage them not to do that. And to use a civil standby if necessary. Yeah. I hope you well, I, Oh, I wanted to do a civil standby. I was just, because uh, I'm, I'm concerned that if they, have to, if they have to leave all their possessions, 
then they're not going to go through with they'll they'll say well I don't want right. the right. there's right. a practical reason and why yeah. just tell yeah. them you know they, you can go back with a law enforcement officer yeah but not to not to put possessions over say yeah. I'm sorry I'm gonna put face to that I went and got a protective order against an old boyfriend when I was younger and I asked to be able to go back to get my stuff and was denied and by the time I went through the process to try and get that overturned, he had sold everything I owned. But you're alive to talk about it. Yep, yeah, except I didn't have a dollar to my name or clothes that I didn't have on my back for the week while I was trying to get it fixed. So I understand that, yeah. but coming from the other side, he, I felt safe enough to go back there. That was my individual choice. Right. And at 26, 27 years old, I had to figure out how to get from Florida to Houston to where yeah. my mom was. I had to figure out how to, and I had no money. Well, I mean, yeah. you can, as, as the, I mean, you can make that call. That's your call to make. But, but I think it's important that people understand that, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of taking a leap of faith. You're taking caution to the wind there to do that. And if that's what you want to do, then do it. Make an informed decision to do it, but understand that it's dangerous. This, this discussion introduces actually a bit of a paradox, which some of you may have already caught on. When the Sojourner people were talking, they correctly pointed out that survivors understand their abusers better than anyone else because they've had to live with them. And yet we still get situations where a survivor exercises bad judgment in terms of safety for failure to recognize the symptoms of what was about to come. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that if, if these women knew they were going to get shot and killed, that they would not have gone there. So I, I and I, I have this conversation with my clients all the time, I'm going to family court, because on the one hand, I want to be respectful and not act like I'm the big shot who knows everything just because I'm Tom the lawyer and I do DV stuff. On the other hand, when I hear them offer a lot of the same rationalizations, you know, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope is what brings you back into the house seven to eight times a lot of the time. And it's a constant walking the tightrope between sharing the things that people like Wendy know, that I know, that you know, sharing that information with a survivor to explain, hey, I see that you're locked on this issue. Trust me, this is a mistake. This is why you came to me for help or advice. Well, at the same time, when she says, this is what makes my, my, my husband or boyfriend tick, for me to shut up and listen to her so I can give that good advice. And, and so I, I, I guess the shortest way I would, I would answer this predicament is that I think in a lot of ways domestic violence survivors are at one and the same time the most and the least knowledgeable about what's going to happen next. They get that there's a danger. And, and separation violence, there's that DOJ staff from some 15 years ago, 75% of homicides or near homicides in intimate relationships happen when the separation occurs. So they're not stupid when they stay in the relationship, but obviously I'm glad you're here today. I hate the idea that you were destitute for a week, but I'm glad we can have this conversation today, you and me. And, so and I, also keep in mind that orders of protection don't go both ways. So there's no need for a, an order that says that the victim can come back to the residence. The victim can do whatever he or she right. wants. It, it's not, not necessary to have, because it's not, it, it only prohibits the defendant's actions. It doesn't prohibit anything that she has to do. So you don't need to do anything extra to the order of protection. You don't need to put a time frame on anything. You don't need to do anything extra, because she can do whatever she wants. If she wants to go back with a civil standby, she can. If she wants to go back without a civil standby, she can. 
Um, we don't need anything on the order of protection that says that. The police so, wanted the... To that, the police also have to follow best practices too. It's not a best practice to put a time limit on an order of protection for any reason. And it's not a mutual order. So... No, no, I, I know that, but I, I'd like to, I'd like for the, if the, if the abuser's the homeowner, Mm -hmm. I'd like for him to be gone for. Then she can for, call. For, 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 but they, right. they won't. The, the cops won't. There's nothing in the, that we can put in an order of protection that will give them permission to do that. They're, because it's not a mutual order. It's not any order that confines or prohibits her behavior at all. No, not her behavior, but order him to say, say he's go, he has to be gone for 48 hours from the date that the order is served. I don't think we can legally do that. Okay. And, and frankly, I, it, it, in the gun context, in, in the standby context, I always tell my clients, you can assume he's going to disobey the gun restriction. You can assume that when you go to that house where you're supposed to be there alone, that he's either going to be there or have a neighbor watching. I, I, it just, it's just, just smart sense. I, I love the idea that you're thinking about ways to help get her back on her feet. So I get it. Um, I just, I guess for me, it, if if it's dangerous, it's dangerous. Don't do a 30-day order. It's a year. If it's not dangerous, don't put the kids on. If a standby is appropriate, if it's a training issue with the police, and this this comes up the issue of yeah, I mean if it's if it's an issue of something that needs to be fixed that you just can't control, it's like when you see a family walk into your your courtroom and you know there needs to be a custody order. There's something's got to be done. You do the best you can, and and they do these wonderful seminars on secondary trauma that we all suffer from burnout from doing these cases because seriously it changes your outlook on life and I, as a friend I would tell you that understand that when you go home there's only so much you can do the gentleman in the back says sometimes he blames himself I hope not because he did what he could you go home you give your family a hug you, you pet your dog you come back the next day and you try again and try not to beat yourself up because something bad happened that you couldn't change if I could actually remember anything we say here today, it would be that. Let me just ask you, the, um, because that's a, that, if it's a training issue with the police, we can resolve it. You can let me know what agency it is, and, and we'll get with Kay and we'll resolve it. We, had, we just had an issue with Mesa PD and uh, AJ uh, saying, oh, there have to be foot requirements on an order of protection, or we won't. That's contrary to best practices. That's, they that's have been. City they, surprised us. Okay, then let us know that because Kay is here, and Kay will contact them and let them know that is contrary to best practices. That is not safe. So we have contacted the individual police agencies. If you have any issues with any individual agencies, Kay and I, we will we will work on getting that fixed. We got that fixed in AJ, we got it fixed in Mesa. We have to get it fixed in Surprise, we will. We'll talk to them. Uh, we'll reach out and, and, and talk to the, the higher-ups because they know that that's just contrary to best practices. We don't do that. So um, so if you need help with that, let us know. Go on, Kay. Yeah. Go fix it. <laughs> Kay, Kay will get out of here. Okay. Not a problem. Okay. Kay's like, <laughs> Alas, do not have a National Bureaucrats Day like they have Mother's Day and Father's Day. Um, <laughs> but our next topic is going to be those little frustrating intricacies that come about when you try to come up with a, a noble, self-contained family violence prevention center program and plan that gets these orders to you so you can adjudicate them. And there were a couple of issues that um, I, I, I promised um, Charles and I would talk about today, and that has to do with the due process issue of when a plaintiff at the contested trial 
wants to talk about issues that were not alleged in the petition. I see people nodding their heads and throwing parties and stuff, okay. And then also the issue of what happens if, um, when, when the, the plaintiff gets really short notice that her case is about to be heard. I mean, we all know that the statute says 10 days, and it's 10 business days under the rules, 10 days for a hearing on demand, five days of exclusive possession of the home is granted. But what I see over and over and over again, and, and I appreciate the diligence, is that the, if my client is the plaintiff, she'll get a call from the judge's chamber saying, your hearing's tomorrow. <laughs> so good luck, <laughs> and, and we'll see you at 2 o'clock, ching. Okay, and then she's like calling me saying, Tom, what the hell, what do I do? So, um, I want, so I'll, I'll talk first about the issue of um, the due process thing. Obviously, it is unfair to allow a plaintiff to allege one, two, and three in the petition because that's what the defendant was told about. So he prepares for the trial. You come in for the trial, and then the plaintiff remembers, oh my gosh, there was four, five, and six, and they were even worse, but I was really traumatized, I was crying, I was a mess. Can I talk about those now? And, and the answer is probably no, and, and it has to be no, and, and I feel bad when I say no, but there are a couple ways that you can try to um, lower the risk that that will happen, and it comes at the ex parte stage. When you have a plaintiff, and I would, I, I'm going to start saying this in every case because I think it's helpful, and you're not giving legal advice, you're informing them about procedure, how things will have to work if things develop in court later on. If I've got a plaintiff that comes in my courtroom and I'm covering a docket and she asks for a protective order, I will say, okay, so you understand. I know you had to work on those computers downstairs and this is a wonderful petition. You got enough information here. The order's yours. I'll, I'll grant it. I want you to understand before you leave the courtroom here today that you will not likely be permitted to talk about extra stuff, other allegations, if your ex challenges this protective order. So you've got a couple choices. If you want, I'm here all afternoon covering this docket. You want to go downstairs and think more carefully or if you, if you can safely wait a couple of days. And, and talk with neighbors, friends, uh, teachers, people who know what happened, who saw the marks on your arms, and make sure that you've got the best examples of what happened to you, you might want to think about doing that before you serve him with this order, because once you serve him, the clock's going to start running. And if he's an aggressive abuser, he'll turn right around, demand a hearing in the hope that you're not ready, and now you're out of luck, and you have to go apply for a second protective order. So. Um, again, every some judges aren't comfortable doing that because they feel like they're giving legal advice. I don't think it's legal advice. I'm simply telling her, if you go to hearing on these allegations, this is what you're stuck with. That's a procedural explanation. This is how due process works. It's no different than when a judge tells a, a participant in trial why a hearsay exhibit can't be allowed in. You're not giving advice. You're saying this is the way it works. So. Um, there's that issue, and then in terms of, of the turnaround time, what I normally tell my clients when they're approaching me for consultations, for example, is I will encourage them to put, again, if they can do it safely, if there's an emergency, they gotta get the protective order, great. But if there is a reprieve, if they are in a safe location, I encourage them to collect their reports, their photographs, Take those screenshots on the cell phone, get them converted to a printout so you're not trying to hand the judge your cell phone, um, and, and, and voice, you know, voice recordings if you threatened you over the phone. 
get those converted into a portable CD, something that can be played in the courtroom. So if he springs that demand for the hearing, you're already ready. You're ready to roll, and it's okay, and you get your best shot. Um, so. Um, I, I'll just throw out that, um, yeah, we, if something is not alleged in a petition, uh, it typically is not allowed at trial. However, um, there are often, and many, many times, where the defendant will open the door by saying, oh, I've never threatened her, or I've never said blah, 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 and then there's a, oh yeah, well, after I issued the order of protection, he sent me the following text message that said, if you do this, I'll kill you. Okay. I think they've opened the door once once they do that. And I think, so my, my procedure is, in the case of chief, you have to stick with what you've alleged in the petition. But if the defendant opens the door and there's something that's necessary on rebuttal um, that disproves that, then, then they can raise other issues. Um, the other issue about, uh, there's a, in my PowerPoint, um, I have an admonition that I read uh, to everybody when I issue an order of protection. And uh, I let them know that we have to have a hearing within a certain amount of time, exclusive use is five days. I let them know this is going to be short notice. And we are not going to have time to send you a letter. We are typically going to call you. We are typically going to send you an email. Uh, please make sure that you have the most updated, fastest way for us to get a hold of you. Make sure the protective order center has a phone number. Make sure we have an email. And make sure you're checking your phone number and your email. Because they can ask for a hearing tomorrow. They can ask for a hearing in six months. They can ask for a hearing in 364 days. So you've got to make sure we've got the most updated information to get a hold of you. And I make sure they understand it will be short notice. So uh, we all kind of do the same uh, variation on that. But it's in, their, it's in your PowerPoint. And if uh, if you need me to send it to you, I can, I can do that. Sticking on the issue of, of the limits of, of forms and, and how the um, preparation system works downstairs in individual prevention centers, um, I've come across situations already where I have seen, because I've watched with my client down to get the protective order, I have watched and listened to workers at the Family Violence Prevention Center tell my client, you're not allowed to allege any incident outside one year. That is not the law in this state. And it never has been. I get why they say that, because they watch a lot of judges who try to enforce that one-year rule with, with, with some justification. And it's become so customary that it's become the default, well, if it's not in a year, then it must not be allowed. And, and so you'll get a situation where someone's giving legal advice downstairs that A, is not a lawyer or a judge, and B, it isn't even accurate. And, and I've seen this over and over again. It's not a one-time thing. So that's probably a training issue for Finvillage Renson Center. But when it comes to coming into court, I do hear this a lot from judges. And about the, the only thing I could say on this is, number one, I feel your pain. Because when I cover the calendar, I don't want to hear about 10 years worth of stuff, what's going on between the two parties. Uh, it can be dreary, especially if they're not prioritizing the stuff that was actually violence as you have to define it in the statute. But I would only offer this caution. I, I love spectrums. <laughs> I just do. And, and, and I would just, if someone's trying to introduce evidence within the one year, well, of course. Okay, there's your one year. 
and assuming it's relevant and, and it meets the relaxed standards under the RPOP, then sure. But what happens when they start asking about this, or this, or even this over here, or this way the heck back eight years ago? There's no algebraic equation for this, but my, my rule that I, that I try to use um, to be fair, and, and I know that I'm probably more liberal on this too than a lot of judges would be, but domestic violence happens in a continuum. It does not happen in isolation. And th there, there's no one type of batterer who handles his home a certain way, but it is not unusual. I think Wendy's got an example here in a second. It's not unusual to have an especially devastating incident several years ago, um, a, a shooting, a burning, um, a sexual assault, um, a strangulation where, where, where she almost died and had to go to the hospital. Something so profound that it will live in her head forever. And if the setting for that assault was one that he can constantly go back and remind her of, you may have this horrible incident here, and then this stuff. Hey, you know, some batterers, a lot of them have their own, um, their little nonverbal cues. They'll tap the table, you know, which the, that, that's like a precursor. You're about to get beaten up. And then after time, all he has to do is tap the table to get her compliance, and she does it. Well, good luck going into court saying, well, he tapped the table. Can I have a protective order? And like, are you nuts? I mean, well, what, how's your table doing? And, and you're looking at it like, well, get out of here. And she's crying because she's talking about him tapping. And I'm giving, it's a slightly silly example, but it illustrates the point. If she's not allowed to talk about, ask her, why, why does that scare you? Is, is there something going on? Because, and you can be candid with her. You know, man, you're giving me information that I can tell you're unhappy, I can tell you're scared, but, but the specifics you're giving me aren't enough. Is there something in your background, something in your history that is making you this frightened? The juries are allowed to ask parties questions, so why can't the trier fact who's a judge? We do it all the time now. In criminal court, where the stakes are way higher, we allow triers of fact to ask probing questions they have to be approved by the judge. In this case, you are the judge. To find out, to get to the bottom of what's going on. So if you have a situation where there's just not a lot here, it's just not a lot, it's, kind of, it's a close call. You're thinking maybe yes, maybe no. But something, you can tell something's going on. You need to be aware that this may have happened with only a couple little spikes here and there, or maybe way back here, or maybe right there in one year, but then there was a reconciliation, divorce petition was dismissed. So the point we're just trying to make here is, I guess I'm begging you here, groveling might be the right word, don't reflexively enforce the one-year rule right out of the gate. Okay, at hand. I was just going to say the rules changed and the rule is that if it's a serious act that's passed a year we can consider it so so you're you're good to you know you're okay my my issue is that it's got to you know it's got to there's got to be some notice of it and and I think that that's that's the due process component and Tom mentioned an example we had I had a case where there was an act that was over 10 years old and it was never it was never the subject of an order of protection. It was never it wasn't even a phone call to the police where the husband took the wife out to the desert and beat the heck out of her. 
Um, she never, she went back with him, she didn't file anything, she didn't keep nothing, no legal action whatsoever. Um, but he became, he began to threaten her to take her out to the desert again. And he kept saying, you know, it's a nice day to go out to the desert. Why don't we go out to the desert? How do you feel about going out to the desert? I think we're going to go out to the desert this weekend. How do you feel about that? Oh, the weather's nice. Maybe we should just take drive out to the desert. Now, in the context of that, she viewed that as a threat because the last time she went out to the desert, she got the you know tar beaten out of her. That was years ago, but it still had the same effect on her now as it did back then. So the, the references that Tom makes, the context is important. And the law, the rule allows us to consider acts that are over a year, uh, if they're serious acts, if there's a basis to do so. But again, I think that they need to be alleged. I don't think you can just go back and, and you know, as I know a lot of times they're in family court, I don't want to hear about their divorce and who cheated on who, and I don't need to hear all the details of their relationship. I want to get to the acts that are alleged in the petition, and then if there's a reason to consider acts over a year, I certainly will do so. Serious acts over a year are fair game, but I think they still have to be put in the petition. And, and since even with the new rule, it's still discretionary, I mean, can versus must, the only point we would make here is that just don't make it an automatic policy of yours. Don't announce from the outset. And the closest analogy I can think of is in family court, there are judges who preemptively warn people as they come in the courtroom, I'm a 50-50 judge, which isn't required by Arizona law anyway. And what is the domestic violence survivor going to think about being willing to raise an allegation if a sitting superior court judge has just told her, hey, implicitly told her, don't even think about asking for more than 50-50, because if you do, we got those sanctions coming your way. So, and this goes back to what I said at the very beginning of the presentation. Remember what's roiling through their mind when they walk through the door to talk to you, because you may be the first person of authority that they've ever shared this with. And, and the thing, nonverbal cues, how you talk, do you seem disinterested, do you seem interested, concerned, you know, oh, okay, when's the next case? It's almost lunch. They read on that stuff. Um, and, and if they get the idea that you're not really interested in hearing about some of the more serious stuff on the spectrum of their, their ordeal, they'll check out, especially if they're not, if they weren't sure that it was the right thing to do in the first place. So, so pick up the pace. You guys talked about definitions, so I, I'm, unless you want me to dwell on this, I'll fly through it, but just bear in mind that if, if the plaintiff in your courtroom is coming out of a shelter, she's probably gotten an education from the shelter. Most of them have workers who talk about domestic violence theory, try to encourage them to show insight into what's going on, how they've experienced these things, so you may, this is actually from the, the NCJFCJ, National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges. So colleagues, they have a manual talking, if this comes out of the bench book for custody, this is the, the sociological definition, if you will, of domestic violence. The one we would have you understand when you walk out of here today to arm yourself with knowledge, it obviously goes way beyond the scope of 13-3601, which defines criminal trespass or disorderly conduct. But that is a very real definition of the person that you're getting in your courtroom. I can skip our buses too, because you have notes that you want to talk about. So I'll find, you know, we were going to talk at length um, about um, batterer behavior too. Um, batterers do like to deflect and minimize. It's a specialty. The, the, the best metaphor I can think of is water. 
It seeps into every crack it'll find, the path of least resistance. If they can find someone to believe their account here, try this, is the, is the protective order, oh great, I'll have a neighbor check. Oh, there's now a, a custody order, then I'll ask for an exchange so I can try it this way. They are relentless. They don't stop. Um, we probably all have different views about the, the effectiveness of battery intervention. Um, we've already heard one comment on it. I'll say this. I, I think it's really a grim outlook. I know there's a huge difference between anger management and batter's intervention. I know she wants to talk about that, so I'll leave that alone. One of my pet peeves, but um, batterers understand only accountability. They really do. Um, when, when, when they hear they're getting diversion, when they hear they're getting the shared parenting time, when they hear that the victim's backing up and giving something they want, they are scoring points. And the, the and I, I'm, I try to research this stuff as much as I can. I, I read articles from time to time, and I read one that I thought was really interesting, and, and it was a former um, probation officer who was also an attorney, and his point was that most batterers will only understand the combination of incarceration and a, 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 a suffocating monitored probation, where they are immediately held accountable for things that they say and do that would violate a court's order, and so we, all of us, have to arm ourselves in the system that when, when an abuser, especially an adjudicated one, one that we can see actually did these things, when they nibble at the edges, well, I'll test that and see if the judge really cares. Oh, the judge didn't care about that. Great, I'll try that. See if that works. Oh, good, she's all worked up, judge. No, no one's doing anything great. I'm going to try that and see if that works. And before you know it, they're calling the victim every single week in violation of the order, and no one cares. So, um... things that batterers like to say. This doesn't prove they're abusers. I have to keep reminding people, because every time I've showed this, people after the conference say, Tom, you're not saying that proves violence. I'm no. But batterers do like to say these things in response to evidence that domestic violence did happen. And I'll speed through that. Every one of these, you've probably heard before, and every one of these came from a case that I've done, or at least once. If you want to talk more about this, this was at four in the morning a couple presentations ago. I have a batterer bingo chart with all the excuses they always come up with. I, a lawyer was on the phone with me telling me why my case was hurt, why the guy needed to have parenting time, and in the space of about two minutes, he rattled off about seven of these. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, if we were playing bingo, I'd freaking win a million dollars right now. And I had a presentation the next week. So I, I, I did that because I was bored. Read a couple of those off. Yeah, uh, it takes two to tango. I had to grab her arm to calm her down. Because everyone knows when you grab someone by the arm, they feel so much better, right? <laughs> uh, my new girlfriend and I get along just fine. Obviously, the problem wasn't me. Actually, I'm glad you asked me to read that, because the only other thing I'm going to say about this chart, and I'll put it back when we leave here if you want to come up and read it, but um, this, there is statistical research on this. The number one witness for an abuser in any arena in court is the new girlfriend or the new wife. Not the parents. 
not neighbor's friends. It's the new wife who comes in and says what a great capital fellow he is and how they have tea and crumpets every day and he brings her flowers and oh, it was that crazy bitch. It was all on her. I know how to be a good mom. I take care of these babies and we're great. And of course, six months later, long after the first case is done, then she gets beaten up, and then she has to go into court and hope that the next new girlfriend doesn't do to her what she did to the first one. So anyway, sorry, I'm blabbing. See how I blab? Um, but they, I mean, you know, she abuses me too. We just need some mediation. She's using domestic violence as a trump card to win custody. There's a difference between coming into your courtroom because you thought it was the most efficient. If a survivor comes into your courtroom and she clearly wants to avoid family court and wants to put the kids on the order, she's following the path of least resistance. You can tell her all the things she needs to know about going to family court. It doesn't mean she's lying to you. I mean, think about it. If you were a survivor and you had a choice between doing a perfectly legal family court petition where you have to go against an opposing lawyer get grilled at depositions, do discovery, do three or four different hearings, and now goody, you get to do a full day trial where the presumption is shared parenting time and joint decision making, or I can do an equally legal protective order. I can go in alone. I don't even have to look at this guy. I can meet with a very nice looking judge who seems like they want to help me out, and I can get my kids on here, and they were involved in the incident. What would you pick? doesn't mean you have to grant the order, but it doesn't mean that they're toying with you or manipulating you because they chose to come to you first. It's just on us to educate them. This has to be done this way. So, um, a couple more things that I've just got on my list that I want to touch on. First of all, just so many of you might not know, uh, at the Superior Court, we've now expanded our ability to handle orders of protection um, Quick, more quickly and more efficiently. Uh, in Mesa, um, Mesa City Court uh, is, they don't work on Fridays. Uh, they, so it's our Mesa CEF uh, office was inundated with orders of protection. So we now help them out by video. Uh, we have litigants who are in Mesa, so they don't have to drive all the way down here. We, we see them by video. We see juvenile uh, out at out our juvenile facilities. We, they now have the equipment to have if somebody needs an order of protection, especially those people who have those DCS juvenile combo cases that we so love. Um, we handle them by video, so we we've kind of expanded that a little bit just just for your edification. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of things that are important to me that that we didn't really have a place for uh, in an organized way, but. Um, when somebody comes in to dismiss an order of protection, um, please have safety plans in your in your uh, courtrooms. If you don't, please have them, and uh, please make sure that you give them. They should not only get a safety plan when they get an order of protection initially, but they should also get a safety plan when they're dismissing an order of protection because we want you know that safety continuum is ongoing. As as Thomas said, you know we want to make sure that they've got a way. They know that they can come in and get another order of protection if they need one and that they have ways to keep themselves safe. And we, we also want to let them know that we, we may have a safety concern for them going forward. Thank you for mentioning dismissing orders of protection because uh, the last DV seminar I was at, one of your old colleagues announced that he doesn't dismiss orders of protection 
and nobody called him on it. So please explain the yes. best practice there. Thank you. Um, well, we don't have a choice. It's a shall. Uh, upon the request of a plaintiff, uh, if we determine that the request is knowingly and voluntarily, not, it's not knowingly, voluntary, and intelligently, and criminal, but it's got to be a voluntary request, not, not being coerced by somebody. But um, we have to dismiss orders of protection when somebody asks us to. Um, now, the one qualifier that I will say is, if they if they come together, I I tell them I tell the person to come on a date when they're not together, because I can't I find that that's coercive and I just I've had them go outside. Yeah. So we and 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 that that goes into my next point, which is you got to know who is in your courtroom. But the 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 um, the law says shall, so I don't think we have a choice in dismissing it. And, um, but that's why I say please give them a safety pass plan and let them know that they they can get another order if they want to. But no, yeah, no judge should be saying I will never dismiss an order of protection because that's contrary to the law. Yeah. How about I've had a situation where um, the victim had the order of protection. It was against her son. Her son went and hired a lawyer to contact victim, so he was having no direct contact get mom to dismiss the order of protection. Uh, is that interference with judicial proceedings? Well, that, that, is a, that is a very good question. It's a great segue, and it's very troubling at the same time. And I, you know, um, anytime you believe that a lawyer has violated um, the, the um, code of, of conduct that they have to follow, you can certainly contact the state bar. And I'll leave it at that for that lawyer, because that's, that, that troubles me a lot. But that happens all the time. And, and that is a perfect segue to my next point, which is, um, as we started out saying, what can we do? One of the things we can do is make sure that our courtrooms are safe. And I had an issue. I had a situation. Um, when, I, when I first started in family court, little did I know just how violent family court really is. I, and I'm, I'm saying that. I'm not saying that in jest. I was a sex crimes prosecutor. I sent people to prison for centuries. And I didn't get my first death threat until I was in family court. So, uh, and it was from an order of protection case. We had a case where um, parties were just outside waiting for the hearing. And the lawyer was browbeating the victim to dismiss the order of protection. And they came in, and the victim was like, I want to dismiss the order of protection. And I, whenever a victim and a defendant are, I, you're going to step outside. I'm going to talk to her by myself. You know, with the with the permission of the lawyer, I said, um, I need to talk to her outside of your presence. Do you have any objection to that? No, I don't. And she said, Yeah, he was just telling me if I didn't do this and if I didn't do that and the custody thing and this will go badly and this and that. And I said, Do you feel like you're you're being coerced to dismiss this? She said, Yes, by the lawyer, not by him. So I, I had the lawyer come back in and said, We're going to have a hearing. And because I can't make a determination that this is a voluntary request to dismiss and yet here. And then after, I my rule is, and I and I've trained the other judges um, and commissioners the same, when anybody's waiting for a hearing, I have one person in, I don't care who is in the courtroom, but I have one person in and one person out. So that they're not outside in the hallway together and they're not inside the courtroom together. I don't even want the lawyers, and I don't. I don't care if the lawyers are together, the two lawyers. But I don't want that situation happening again, where the victim is is in the hallway being browbeaten by the lawyer. So I have one party and their counsel in, and one party and their counsel out. And that goes to knowing 
what is going on in your hallway, knowing what is going on in your courtroom, that's really important. Last week we had a fist fight in the hallway. It's family court. We have raised voices and fist fights in the hallway. It, it's ridiculous, but when it comes to orders of protection, it's not safe. The other thing I would say in terms of what you can do is also be aware of what's going on in your courtroom in front of you. Be aware of those the drumming of the finger on the desk. Be aware of those things that are going on, interpersonal things. That you might not know what those are, but if you see repetitive behavior, you'll pick up on it. I had a, a case um, where the defendant, in the middle of the hearing, starts fashioning out of a paper clip, starts unwinding the paper clip, just like this, while the victim is testifying. So it ended up like this, and I said, let me have it. Yeah. Don't be afraid to call deputies in there if you need deputies escorting in and out. Make sure that you always, after a hearing, uh, the party, uh, one party leaves and the other person stays for 10 minutes to give them time to clear out. I do that with well, the friends and family members too. You let the petitioner leave first. I let the petitioner leave first. Yeah, because the defendant's got all the paperwork and yeah. Well, I, the defendant I, can lie and wait. Exactly. So I, I always let the petitioner leave. If there's an issue where the petitioner needs an escort out, uh, there are times when I've had an escort for both of them because I want to make sure that the petitioner's safely out and that the defendant's not you know, doing anything else or not supposed to. But I also make sure to tell the friends and family members, the cheering section, you're staying in here too. I don't want any, anybody having any contact with anybody. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so that's just, you know, just really be aware uh, of the safety issues. Um, and that, then I was just going to uh, end with the, the little Brady story with the murders. Yeah, do you want to okay. my closing thought before or after? Yeah, go ahead. Makes you happy. Well, I'll do, I'll do mine because it's not a closing thought, and then you can do the closing right. thought. Sure. So um, the, the last story I want to share, because it dovetails off of Kay's um, wonderful presentation, uh, Brady and weapons and, and this soup, this whole big, you know, the intersection of criminal. I had a case, and it, and it, uh, I, it ended up being before me for a hearing. And how it got there, it was a little convoluted how it got there, but that's not really important. The allocations on the order of protection were that the defendant murdered the plaintiff's new husband in front of her. A murder. So the hearing was like five minutes long. Well, what's your evidence? He killed my husband in front of me. Guns shooting off uh, in my front yard. I had to. I saw bullets coming out of the gun. I ran for my life. I thought he was going to shoot me. What would you like to say? Uh, well, I was acquitted, and he was. He was acquitted by a jury because it was self-defense. Because the husband, the new husband, they had bad blood between them. The new husband threatened. Um, he happened to go to the house to pick up the kids with a gun, but whatever. Um, to each his own. And, and the new husband threatened him, and he pulled out his gun, and there was a gun battle in her front yard. And this comes about because the defendant says, I don't care about the order of protection being in place. I just want my guns back. So I have to make Brady finding. And his argument is, he was acquitted. And my finding was, that's a criminal case. Threshold. Burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, the burden of proof is by a, preponderance, by a preponderance of the evidence. The issue isn't what happened at all to the new husband. The issue is what happened to the plaintiff. 
whether the plaintiff was at risk and whether there was an act of domestic violence or a risk of domestic violence to the plaintiff. And you had a gun battle in her front yard, which she fled from and was in fear for her safety. So at the very least, we have disorderly conduct. You lose, no guns, get out. <laughs> that was my rule. Disorderly conduct. Serious, violent, and disruptive behavior that disturbed her peace and quiet. There we go. She was fleeing for her life. But I couldn't believe, I, I really was like, seriously, a lawyer represented him and said, he wants his guns back. No, the answer is no. So, and, and as a result of that, um, because he was acquitted of, of the crime of murder. So without that Brady finding, he would have gotten his guns back. Without that order of protection and that Brady finding, there was absolutely nothing that said he could not possess a firearm. And that Brady finding is what keeps him from possessing a firearm. So sometimes orders of protection are, are a, a, little bit, um, a little bit more than just a piece of paper. They, are actually, um, they actually give the victim some sense of security, and, and it's a good thing. I, you know, Wendy's story about the attorney who tried to browbeat that survivor into dropping the protective order is upsetting to me because in family court, I see that, or variations on that theme all the time. You know, our Supreme Court, our Arizona Supreme Court, 13 years ago, changed the standard of advocacy from zealous to honorable. And I'm still not convinced the majority of my colleagues have figured that out yet. Um, the, I, I don't see anything honorable about standing out in the hallway with a pro-per DV survivor and let's not kid ourselves, it's all how you say it. There's, there's a way to tell an opposing side, look, because I've had to do this when I litigate against proper abusers. I mean, there's a way to say to someone, look, I, we, I know we disagree on this, but if we do a trial, understand that there may be some sanctions that I may ask for. The judge may not agree with me, but those are legal repercussions that could come with doing this. Are you sure this is what you want? That's an appropriate conversation versus eyeballing someone when you're much bigger and the, just the presence in the hall. Lord, attorneys are frightening. We are. And to not recognize that, just kidding ourselves. So maybe this is better for conversation around a beer or well, St. Patrick's Day was yesterday, but <laughs> coffee. Um, but just never forget the, the, the effect you have on people just because they, they put you up in this elevated seat for a reason, to inspire respect for the court system, but it does come with a cost in domestic violence cases. Just be aware of that. The only other closing thought, I'll skip this slide. Um, <laughs> this is not a dead child. This is a child who's playing in a sandbox, face down. I got off of Google Images and I put it in the slideshow and I was horrified this morning. I was like, oh my gosh, they're gonna think I got a photo of a dead kid here. He's not a dead kid. But this is, this is a parting shot because it doesn't have so much to do with protective orders per se as where we're going in the future with domestic violence. There are already metropolitan areas that are experimenting with unified domestic violence courts where the conduct of an abuser or the ordeal of a survivor is litigated in one court room or house with a judge who knows that family to resolve criminal, juvenile, protective order, family, all the litigation in one place. Now, they're obviously, you have to work out some stuff because criminal court involves public defenders. They may involve a jury trial. But 
I put this up here because I frequently hear, and some of you may do criminal cases too, I frequently encounter this phenomenon where I will come down as victim's counsel in criminal court or into protective order court. And I also happen to be the survivor's family court attorney and the resentment coming from the other stakeholders in the, in the room is palpable. And you'll hear them say, I, I have a sentencing coming up in two weeks where I'm victim's counsel and I'm also her family law attorney and the public defender is outraged at my existence. That I breathe air in and out every day is an affront to him. And then he stands up and says, well, we don't need these family law types coming into our court. This is how we do things here in criminal court, which is a wonderfully narrow outlook on solving the problem of domestic violence. We're never going to fix DV until we start breaking down the barriers that separate different judges making different decisions about a family. Because let's face it. Abusers manipulate that too. They will, they will give a story to a criminal sentencing judge of their stirring remorse, how awful they feel about what they did. If only you'll give me that diversion, I will make things right, and, and the earth will start rotating in the correct direction, Your Honor, because I, I, I'm a good person now. And then a week later, they're down in family court talking about the bitch who made them do it. And I need some of that 50-50 time because she's mentally unstable and she fabricated things and look, she made me go through that criminal case and my lawyer made me plead guilty and I would have fought the case if I'd had a real lawyer instead of a public defender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And never the two lawyers, never the two judges meet. And the only one who wins with that is the abuser. So I don't expect you to start making criminal court orders in your protective order proceedings. But when you read about this issue, when you start hearing people smirk or roll their eyeballs by, oh yeah, you tried to bring up a family thing in juvenile court and just, it's just ridiculous, try to keep it lurking in the back of your mind that maybe there's a reason why we have to change how we do business. Not today, maybe not next year, but soon this sort of nonsense has to stop or we're never going to fix it. That's so. so all I have. Our contact information, I just like putting pictures that I took. So there, I took that picture. Tom, can you play that audio? Oh, it, I don't mind if you don't mind. No, we're doing questions till, till 12. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, well, let's let's get questions first. Yeah. Oh, I have lots of them. Are you ready? <laughs> first, you have to say this is a really cool picture. I just wanted to hear really that. Cool. <laughs> I took this picture. Wow, nice. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's, it's Chandler, Arizona. <laughs> I find that hard to yeah. You had mentioned at the beginning uh, mother coming in for a 16 year old daughter. Yeah. Yay or nay? I mean, you have, yes, if there's, if the 16 year old, I mean, 16 year olds having sex with a 19 year old, that's against the law and it's an act of domestic violence against the 16 year old. So I also tell her, um, you're going to find an uphill battle if the 16 year old doesn't want the order of protection. It could backfire. Um, it could backfire badly, but, you know, there are times. It's both ways. Sometimes it's, a, sometimes it's a very young and already abusive relationship that the 16-year-old is ready to get out of that can't get out of any other way. And sometimes it's we're in love and, you know, good luck with that. But, you but know, the grounds for mom doing that are? Mom, well, the mom, the mom can get an order on behalf of a minor child. Okay, that's what yeah, I'm checking. Yeah. How about the other direction? Child comes in because dad hits her. Can child get... Uh, child, yes, there are circumstances where a plaintiff can be a minor if the allegation is against um, the parent and the, pa the other parent's not available, but typically minors cannot get orders of protection without a guardian filing for them. 
if, if, um, if the parent is not available, because the parent, one parent is the abuser, so that they're unavailable, but there should be somebody else asking for that order on behalf of the minor. Well, if, if all they've got is the one, if the other one's died or something. Then, then that, that child situation. can get an order of protection, yes. And then where do you go with the living situation? How do you do I, that? I can't resolve the living situation at all. I don't have any way of resolving that. Okay. Because that's not, that's not the only issue that's before me is do I grant the order or don't I? Um, but so you may, but uh, I, there was, and I should say, there was a case where that happened where the plaintiff came in. I can't remember whether the mom was already in prison and the dad was abusing her or what the circumstances were, but I had, but I had called DCS because there was no place for there was no place for the child to go, and I think that that's, that's the answer. You know, you can't resolve it, but DCS needs to be notified if there's a child that's going to be a dependent child as a result of that work. And then everyone agrees that if there's an actual abusive situation, you want to err on the side of caution and try and help. However, we also all know that it is a tool to, I'm about to file a divorce, if I get a protective order now, I have entered a divorce proceeding, when I file with this protective order, then I'm gonna get the kids, he's screwed, she's screwed, whatever. Um, how do you deal with it when, I mean, you can obviously deny it, but is there anything you can do when it's clearly a tool? Just rule in the case. But I, I mean, I'll go first. But we don't, but we don't know that it's tool. We'll never know about you. We don't often know if it's, you know, somebody comes in in March and they say, so-and-so broke my cell phone in December, and I want the kids off the board. And there's no acts involving the kids, there's no issue with the kids. Why are you here? Because my lawyer said to come in and ask for an order of protection because I'm about to get divorced. Well, if you find credible evidence that the cell phone got broken and it was an act of domestic violence, you grant the order of protection. I don't put the kids on the order because there's no basis to do so. If you have a question about whether uh, the order of protection should be granted, you can set a free assurance hearing. If you don't find the act credible, you can deny it. Those are your options. So you have to you 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 just have to make that credibility determination. The fact that there's a divorce pending, the fact that there's a divorce that's even being filed simultaneously with the order of protection, doesn't render the request for the order of protection incredible, invalid or anything it's just you've got to just determine you know maybe i'm filing for divorce right now because this is the first time that i've been safe enough to get out and the act happened in december but this is the first time i've felt safe enough to do anything so just just the, the mere fact that the order of protection is being filed at the same time as the divorce isn't in and of itself you know grounds to to just say oh that's just a tool and you know there may be reasons for it so but i but i look very very i i, I certainly look much much more critically when, with respect to putting the children on the order because when you when you talk to the litigant you will hear very quickly i don't want him to have the kids i don't want him to have contact with the kids not because acts of domestic violence have occurred against the kids but he's a bad parent uh he does drugs he's you know, doesn't pay attention to them. I don't like the way he disciplines them. Nothing that you're going to put the kids on the order for. Definitely be much more skeptical about that. But if, if you find a credible act of domestic violence, you can grant the order of protection. And I would do that. Her answer, How, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, her answer is perfect. I mean, we've all, I, I assume, just law of averages will dictate that at some point, we will encounter a case where we think we know what's going on and it turns out that we were wrong. 
which is why I, I, keep, I keep going back to vote your conscience. It, 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 and again, the answer was perfect. If, if the phone was broken, let her deal with the repercussions of the delayed report when she goes to family court. You know she's going to have to answer for that. If she tries to put the kids on the order and you know the kids can't go on the order, then you deny the kids on the order. She will have to deal with those repercussions in family court. I would just hate to see a situation where because you believe she's inherently dishonest because of her timing without knowing her complete situation, that you decided to discount your credibility, deny the order altogether, and it turns out she was telling the truth all along. Because a batterer will use your decision in family court as evidence that there was no DV, even though it's a completely different standard of proof, completely different disclosure rules, different everything, because batterers are like water. They look for any angle, any seepage, any erosion, anything they can do to break down a survivor. So I, I, no one likes being taken advantage of. I mean, when I'm covering a docket and I see someone that I think is, is using my court as a way of getting the rent, I'm not happy about it. But if I think the allegation's legit, I grant the order. And then if people want to make fun of me later, make fun of me. I, I, don't, I don't care. How about allegations of sexual abuse that maybe against a child or something that someone says, no, no, I would never report this to police. I don't want to go through that but I am using it for the order of protection. I think if there's an allegation of sexual abuse uh, against a child and somebody's not willing to call the police, then DCS needs to be involved. Yeah, that's, that's um, any, you know, I, I, had, I had one where, uh, you know, the grandmother came in, well, the mom got, it was another 16-year-old, 18-year-old situation, and, and grandmother came in to get the order, or, well, the kid's mother came in to get the order of protection, and then she came in to dismiss the order of protection. She said, well, it's making it difficult to see my grandchild. Uh, I'm like, well, what the person in the middle is a 16-year-old daughter that you said was being beaten by this 19-year-old or 18-year-old boyfriend who's the father of the, the baby, now the grandchild. And orders of protection are designed to keep someone safe. So your inconvenience in seeing your grandchild was not really my issue. And I call DCS because I'm like, you know, nobody's protecting the 16-year-old. And let them do what they're going to do. But, I, you know, I don't call DCS often. But if there's an issue like that, you know, if, if there's somebody that's not willing to report child abuse, that, that's something DCS needs to be involved with, I think. We have some multimedia for you. We weren't sure we'd have time, and Charles asked me to kick it around. Can we wait on that? Yeah. Before, before we get to that, uh, someone asked the question about prior dismissed orders. Yeah. And that is directly answered by RPOP 19, which says prior dismissed orders are not considered. A judicial officer must not consider the number of times a protective order has been dismissed as a, ba as a basis for denying a request. Um, basically, you just look at the petition before you and, and rule on that. So that's directly answered by the rule. Yeah. This is 11 minutes long, so I'm going to keep our oath that we would get you out of here by noon. I play this in trainings all the time because I, I think it's an interesting exercise and um, I think you'll like it. It's um, a series of recordings that were left on the phone of a woman by her estranged husband. They were married at the time, but living apart. The calls. This, you're getting a greatest hits version here. Um, there were several hundred phone calls over the space of about three or four months. I pared it down to a selection because I didn't think that Charles would ever let me play eight hours of phone recordings <laughs> here today. But I'm going to give you 11 minutes. And, and when I do, I want you to be asking yourself 
really this question. Based on these recordings, would you give the survivor, I like survivor, I mean it's phone calls, would you give her a protective order? That's the, I ask other questions in different arenas with different people. My question for you, when you hear this, 11 minutes, would you grant a protective order to this woman, her name's Sam, she gave me permission to use this for training. Um, if she came into court and said, here are the 11 minutes, would you please give me a protective order? And then in whatever time he allows, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about it. So here we go. The other thing we want you to do is your evaluation while you're listening to this and leave it um, by on that back table. Thank you. Or I'll fill those out for you and you can put them up here. <laughs> <laughs> All five. No, really. Okay. Next message sent on Sunday, April 5th at 8.27 a.m. Well, um, yeah. Well, I had a great day. I had a great morning. Just thinking about some of the things that you said to me last night. I get a chance to talk to you. Well, it's 8.30. If you stayed up all night with that shit, talking shit, then you're probably still sleeping. Call me when you get up. End of message. Says how you want to handle this? Do I ignore me? And, you know... I don't know, further, further torment me. It's not acceptable, Sam. And the way you're dealing with me and the way you're treating me after 10 years of marriage is absolutely unacceptable. It's not about how quickly you can get the papers and I'll just go away, because I, I can't. It's not how it goes. You know, I'm not okay with it. And you need, to, you need to wise up. And it's not okay. So you need to call me. End of message to send Thursday, April 23rd at 8.46 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. You need to come over right now. It's um, 8.45. I know you're a real busy person selling clothing and everything else and just forgetting about the 10 years of marriage that we had. But the fact of the matter is you need to come over here right now and talk to me. End of message. Send Thursday, April 23rd at 8.51 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. Send on Thursday, April 23rd at 9.12 p.m. Yeah, I'm having a great day. This is great. Um, I know that you're not home. I had somebody knock on your door. And I know your car is there. I guess that maybe you're just out with your new boyfriend and that this is all okay with you. Somehow this is okay with you. Well, it's not okay with me, Sam. End of message. Are you scared Next yet? message sent no. on Thursday, April 23rd at 9.31 p.m. The only thing that's gonna set me free is the truth. So, and I know it's going to be tough for you, but all I'm asking for you to do is tell me the truth. Because from my side of the fence, there's no way that the things that I've been living over the course of the last eight months and before is truthful. There's a lot of left out information that is driving me crazy. 
if you want me to go away, then just tell me the fucking truth. The truth. I don't want some fabricated BS. I just want the truth. I mean, are you weak? Are you that? You know, I mean, my gosh, Sam. You know, you call yourself a Christian person? I mean, give me a break. Honest to God, give me a fucking break. You're a liar and a cheater, you know? And just come to grips with that and tell me what the fuck happened and then I'll have to deal with it, but at least I'll have the truth. That's all I'm asking for you. Are you that weak if you can't tell me what the fuck really happened? I don't need you to manufacture some bullshit. I just need you to tell me the truth. Is that too much to ask after, you know, making you a stay-at-home mom for 10 years? You think that, you know, and I'm still here telling you how much I love you? Are you for real, man? Are you, are you out of your fucking mind? Come on. End of message. Next message. You are a cruel and cowardice bitch. As much as I love you, and I would take you back in a second, I'm going to tell you right now, you are as cruel as they come, Sam. And you are very much a coward. You're a liar. You're a cheat. And you can't tell me all I'm asking for you to tell me the truth. That's all I'm asking. Just tell me the truth. Is that so fucking hard, man? You know what I'm saying? Do you think that your salvation is in place, what you're doing to me right now? Do you think I don't have God on my side? I got news for you, man. You, you have issued yourself a life of pain if you think that you're going to get away with being a slut or a whore or whatever the fuck it is you, you are. End of message. Send Thursday, April 23rd at 9.47 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. All right, so I've tried to call you like, what, 30 times in the last 15 minutes or whatever. And this additionally, unfucking fathomable. Really, this is what it's come down to. It's come down to the fact that you won't even talk to me. And what have I done? Why, because I, I'm not okay with saying you can just go away and just take my girls and, um, you know, go out and marry uh, the guy that owns sex and motorcycles or some other fucking guy that you met. You know, my gosh, you have no clue. You have no idea what, what's going to happen to your salvation from what you're doing right now. And what's happening to my salvation? Because I'm like, I'm pissed off about this. This is not happy. I'm not, I'm not happy. End of message. Send Thursday, April 23rd at 9.56 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. Send on Thursday, April 23rd at 10 p.m. I am grounded in Christianity and I, I, I always was. I was always an honest person, really honest, but always honest. And you just don't lie to people. You can't. You can't lie to people and then say that you're a Christian. End of message. Next message. My number is 480-766-2500. In case you wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, in case you've forgotten. <laughs> After the 30th. Your husband. Still your husband. 
guess I'm just sitting here disturbed by the fact that you're kicking me to the curb. I love you like no other. God put you in my path. Please don't throw that out of the bus, babe. Please. I know you're listening to this. And I know that you have a heart. I know you have some other things and some other plans and some other things that are taking you astray. Dad, I'm telling you, for now, Jesus Christ, you're all Satan. End of message. To reply to it, send Thursday, April 23rd at 10.06 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. Sam, it's 10, 10 o'clock right now, and uh, I really would appreciate the respect that I deserve by you. Let's to your messages, we can probably go on and call me. I mean, I mean, you're over there, I'm over here. It's not like I'm going to harm you in any way. I just want to talk. I just want to talk. And Thursday, April 23rd at 10.15 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. Sent on Saturday, May 2nd at 8.12 p.m. Well, Sam, here we go again. You, you hung up on me. You know, all I said, I said it very politely to you. That I feel that the, the actions that you have taken by cheating on me and lying to me and then leaving me have made you the definition of what would be considered a whore. And uh, I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings and everything else, but it, it does. And, in, and the truth is that that's the definition of it. You know, I'm sorry. What I've asked you to do is please tell me the truth. I will move on. Uh, we can be best friends. What you have done is ruin you. You are a housebreaker and you are a whore. Look it up in the dictionary. And then you lied to me and you're still continuing to lie to me. And then you expect me to just go away. And it's amazing that you think that I could just go away. I can't just have, you don't even have the nuts to tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. I hope so. I ask you, I ask you very, very friendly and very, very sincerely. I ask you, set me free. Please tell me the truth. And what did you do? You hung up the phone on me. I didn't, I didn't attack you in any way. I said, I'm sorry, but I have to tell you, you are a whore. Just look at it in the dictionary, man. I'm sorry. If that hurts your feelings, it's, it's too bad. It hurts my feelings, I'm going to watch the war, okay? End of message. Next message. The reason I'm wasting my time calling you is because um, I was hoping that you would be woman enough to answer the phone and, you know, be honest with me. Not to harass you in any way or anything else, but obviously you're just going to ignore my calls and you're going to go on with your... Uh, whatever the hell you're doing, I don't know what you're doing, but anyway, I tried, I've tried several times, and to the point where I'm, I'm done trying, so enjoy yourself, Samantha, that bless you. End of message. Sent Saturday, May 2nd at 9.05 p.m. Arizona time. Next message. Okay, I don't get it. You're tired, 
the tuning is with the phone call so loud. You're cranking the music so loud you can't hear the phone ringing. I just want to talk to you. Why won't you talk to me? That's weird. What the fuck are you doing? End of message. Send Tuesday, May 19th at 10.09 p.m. Arizona time. Okay, well, you told me to call you. Touch bases. You didn't have to try and touch bases with you. I guess you couldn't hear the phone again. Or possibly I just told you not to answer it. I'm not sure, but anyway, give me a call. End of message. Sent Tuesday, June 16th at 6.45 p.m. Arizona time. Time won't allow us to do a detailed discussion, obviously, because you have lunches to get to and, and obligations, but show of hands, how many people would grant the protective order based on this? Oh, after the first call, I would grant <laughs> Okay, um, and don't be bashful. If you would hesitate, go ahead and raise your hand. If there's something that you think is just not quite there yet, I gotta tell you, I played this for a whole room, twice the size of this one, for family court judges and family court attorneys. Now I asked them, would any of you limit his parenting time or question decision making? Not a single one raised their hand. They all were, I don't know if they were okay with this, but none of them would have used this as a basis for questioning joint decision making or, or equal parenting time. So, um, because time is short, I, 30 minutes after that last call, um, he, he came to the house and uh, broke down the door. She was on the phone, ripped the phone out of her hand, stomped on it. Can we get the lights? Yeah. Yeah. Turn, turn lights off. Yeah. You can see it. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. Yeah, it's a completely separate upper lip. Yeah. Um, he hurled her face first mm -hmm. into one of these, a corner of buttons in the wall, split open her entire face. She had 42 stitches. And then, of course, I show this, and, and all the family court judges and little tours of well, well, no, that, of course. And I'm thinking, didn't you guys see the context clues? <laughs> Did you really think this was someone who was going to be able to be a joint decision maker and co-parent, or, or are we so into, you know, locked into our perceptions of how domestic violence survivors are behaved? Because she actually called him back on a couple of those calls because he was commenting about how, how she hung up on him. Um, he eventually got prosecuted, um, eventually went to prison on probation, he got probation, went to prison on probation violation. Um, at last report, I haven't confirmed this, I haven't seen this client of mine, this was 2008, nine. it's been a while now. The last report I heard from, I was her victim's counsel in criminal court, a coworker of my CLS handled her family court case. The rumor was that she had gone back to him. So, I don't offer that as a way of sneering at her. I offer it so that we can all get together and understand that this is complicated stuff. If, um, if you had an employer who paid you $300,000 a year with four months of paid vacation, a company card, a free credit card, and that person yelled and screamed at you every single day in your office, but you still got to cash that check every month, I'm getting, in this economy, if you had a bunch of kids, I'm guessing a lot of you would hang on to that job for a while. You might think about quitting, you might go back too. 
$300,000 a year, it's a lot of money. You can do a lot of things with that. You would put up with an awful lot. And, and you might go out and interview someone for a while, then, no, I don't want to leave quite yet. We're going through so much, the kids have this, the kids have that. Um, and that's just an employer putting you down, telling you how stupid you are, you can't track documents for yourself. Now imagine it's someone you fell in love with, someone that you saw the best of for years. It wasn't just this. They're, I mean, there's a reason they call it the honeymoon cycle. And people want to believe the best in people. So I, I, I want to make darn sure you don't walk out of here. I threw in that bit about possible reconciliation, not because I think it was a great idea. I don't, obviously. Not even so that we would think, boy, she sure is stupid. But just to understand how powerful the psychological impact of this stuff is and, and the difference that you can make. We, if, she, if she did go back to him, and, and again, I don't know that for sure, we at least bought her three to four years of safety. She may, be, she may have been killed if we hadn't done, if people like you hadn't done your job in court to make this happen. Like I said, we're not a perfect solution, but you do make a difference. And, and that's something you should take back to the bank. So um, that's all I have. Thanks for playing the extra stuff. Wendy says thanks. She's in the back of the room. Now, follow-up seminar. Dr. Neckel is going to explain why she would go back to him. <laughs> <laughs> if you're uh, doing civil traffic hearing office.